listening to the bomb hole. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. The bomb hole. Gonna slide down in big hills. You know what I mean? On a big, nice burgundy snowboard. All right, here we go. We're back in the booth here at the bomb hole. We got a big episode for you guys, which is presented by Pub Beer. First things first, got to ask, Stony Buds, how are you doing today? So good, my dog. Whew, that was solid. That was solid. <laughs> to my left, we got Jamie Lynn in the booth. Jamie, how are you doing today? Doing well. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be a, a banter marathon, a great chat, if you will. Uh, and for our listeners that don't know who Jamie Lynn is, uh, you might not want to consider yourself a fucking snowboarder. But um, he is an enigma to many. He's arguably the most iconic pro snowboarder that snowboarding has ever seen. In the words of all of his friends who I talk to, he's, quote unquote, the most authentic person I've ever met. His art, his style, his methods, and his authenticity transcends generations and has bolstered the culture and progression of snowboarding. Jamie is the foundation which snowboarding is built on. Um, so let's just jump right into it. I know you have a, a good Patreon question that kind of talks about the early days, bud. I do. This is from uh, Jared Michael Mock. Can you tell us about riding in the Northwest in the early days in the FGHC crew? Uh, the FGHC crew. Um, it's a group of guys that I grew up with and went to school with in Auburn, Washington. And uh, the FGHC designation came from a vehicle. It was a 76 Ford Granada that my friend Dylan's mom gave him when we were 14, 15 years old. Uh, he had the car. They gave us the wheels, but he didn't like to drive it. So it was something that kind of took the honors to get behind the wheel. And I think I had a learning permit, driver's permit at the time. So he had went into the DMV with his brother's birth certificate, and his brother was 21 years old. So he got a driver's license with his brother's name on it, but his picture, which allowed me to have a legal guardian when I was behind the wheel of this car. And this car was something that we took everywhere. It gave us the freedom to get out of the town that we were growing up in, um, opens up to a world that was you know, far reaching than what we had experienced before took us down to Timberline in the summer, um, took us up to Canada to skate the Snake Bowls, and then just up to the local Snoqualmie Pass every night after school until 10.30. It was a freedom machine. But, the, you know, the FGHC, the Ford Granada Hardcore, came off of that moniker of that, based on that vehicle, 76 Ford Granada. 14, too, Wow. Incredible. I can appreciate that though. I don't like to drive either, so I would have been. Like, I wish I had a homie like you to be like, "I got the car, dude. Take the wheels. Uh, it's good style." So I got a note from Pete Sorry that he said that uh, your parents were were sprout farmers, and you you grew up on a a farm. And I kind of want to dive into you know what your childhood looked like, and maybe shaped you to to who you are. Uh, I was born in Vancouver, Washington, down on the border of Oregon and Washington. And somewhere in the late 70s, my dad had this idea that he was going to become a sprout farmer. I think he worked for another sprout farm and saw what they were doing and kind of came to the conclusion that he could do it a little differently and a little better. So 
around 1979, 1980, we packed up from Battleground where we were living and attempted to move up to Vashon Island, which is off in the Puget Sound off of Seattle. And I mean, we didn't have, we were living in a single wide trailer in Battleground, not much income, not much opportunity. And I think we attempted to leave Battleground two or three times and each time we'd our car would break down you know and we had like a 70s international pickup that we were all packed up had a camper on the back and i think the tranny broke as we were leaving the driveway and then uh next attempt was in a 74 super beetle bug with five of us you know i have two brothers my mom and dad packed into this volkswagen bug we made it about halfway up the I-5 corridor before it broke down. And that was about 10 o'clock at night. And I remember having to push this bug up the hill, pulled it over on the side of the road, then all five of us slept in it until we could get some help getting it back to battleground the next morning. And then when we moved, my, finally made it up into the Seattle area, we were kind of looking for a place to start the sprout farm. I don't think we knew Vashon was the spot yet. So we spent a couple months camping in the state parks and that experience kind of opened me up to like um just existing in a camping environment you know always washing your dishes in a creek or the ocean you know never really going to the bathroom in a real designated toilet it was kind of wherever you could get down and then we finally found a spot on Vashon Island, which is um, it's a pretty hippie-rich environment, you know, kind of a, an outcast island off of the metro area of Seattle. But it was five miles long and three miles wide. And, and from a kid that was in first, second, third grade, if you had a BMX bike, you were king. And you could go everywhere. And, and essentially, our, our parents were busy kind of getting the startup business going so it left the three boys at their own will to you know explore the island you know or the bm or the bowling alley was kind of like our daycare so i just remember like playing a lot of video games and you know it was pac-man and defender and joust and and that kind of um uh, you know, and there were some BMX jumps behind the bowling alley that I remember growing up with, and all the high schoolers would go back there and drink and smoke cigarettes and ride their BMX bikes. But as a young kid, like, that was kind of, you know, what, that was my world, uh, listening to heavy metal music and kind of getting in trouble behind the bowling alley. But then as... Um, as we progressed and started distributing our sprouts in you know Seattle and Tacoma, the logistics of being on the island and the ferry was always kind of a, a economical hang-up. So that's when we decided to find some place in the middle, and that was Auburn, Washington. And it's kind of like the split the difference between Seattle and Tacoma. And that's from fourth grade through high school and where I still live and have property now is in Auburn. What at uh what age did you discover the, the mountains and, and snowboarding? What did that look like? You know, Vashon was a really impressionable spot for my introduction to skiing or, or being up in the mountains because the K two factory was located on Vashon and and it was something that we would go and um 
we would raid the dumpster for skis that were thrown away, and we'd use those skis to make sleds in in the wintertime, where you take these two tens and you, you know, take a two-by-four and nail it to the, to the skis and then put, like, a lawn chair on, and we would hill-bomb the hills in the wintertime on these K2 skis. And then I think they offered on Vashon, they offered, like, a ski bus. And all my friends kind of growing up, would go skiing on the ski bus but it was like 20 bucks and at the time we really didn't have any money and it was something that i always wanted to do and be a part of but never really could so it kind of planted the seed that that was an option and that was like you know that's what you did if you lived in the northwest close to the mountains so it just made it when i did have that opportunity that i took advantage of it and that was farther down the line you know probably yeah, I was probably in third grade on Vashon. It wasn't until I was like sixth, seventh grade that I actually had the chance to go up. And, and I'd only really skied for a couple times before I started snowboarding. I was talking to Temple Cummins uh, doing the research for this episode, and he mentioned you guys rode together when you guys were kids. And he said that you used to ride a 165 or some monster board when you were really young. Yeah, it was a 168 Kinetic and being 14, 15 years old, I think I went from like a Burton Backhill 140 to a Kinetic 168. Is that uh, a GNU Kinetic? Yeah, yep, I remember those. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know, I don't know why. I can't. I don't have no answer for it. But there was something that was I was drawn to it, and and at the time he was probably riding a 145. You know, and just the difference between that approach with the bigger board. And, I don't know, it's just something that I felt more comfortable on. Probably shaped your riding in some ways. Uh, we actually happen to have a guest question from Temple Cummins. Here we go. Jamie, hi. Bomb hello. This is Temple. Quick question for Jamie. FGHC always had the best North Face gear in town. You guys pretty much made North Face the most popular thing ever. How'd you get it? Ooh. Talk to you guys soon. Can't wait to listen. But You know, that's kind of a sticky question. <laughs> My introduction to North Face was um, actually we were up at this ski area on the Snoqualmie Pass called Hayak, and it was a rainy, soggy day. We had rode all morning, got soaking wet with whatever limited equipment we had and outerwear. We went into the lodge to get warm and dry. And then about an hour or two later, Mike Rankwit walks in and he had a North Face mountain gear top and bottom. And I watched him take off the jacket, give it a shake. All the rain fell off of it and he was dry as a bone underneath. And uh, I looked at that and said, I don't care what it takes. That's what we need. We need to get that. And, um, I mean, it's not the best story, but we figured out that if you went to REI, you could get a North Face jacket through means that wasn't necessarily buying it. (laughs) (laughs) And it there was a jacket that was $225. It was a thin, lightweight shell, which was easily packable and concealable as you were making your exit. 
And then we took that, I took that jacket and I went up to the North Face shop in Seattle and I went in and said, my mom or my grandma got me this jacket for my birthday. I already have a jacket. I'd like to exchange it for the mountain pant, the bibbed North Face heavy duty pant. And as I was trying on the sizing of these pants, I brought a nut jacket that was matching into the dressing room, concealed it in a manner that was not very much something to be proud of. But what happened is I walked out of there with like a $500 North Face kit that I was set, you know, set for life in, but... You know, tough question, Temple, but it kind of, <laughs> but being, you know, I don't know. You got to do not, what you got to do, yeah, right? It's, it's not something I'm proud to say that that was part of my my early foundation of getting a chance to go and experience snowboarding in a way that gave me the chance to like ride for longer and harder and love, you know, do something that I loved more. But at the time, like we really, we really didn't have the resources or the, you know, I didn't, we didn't have like, you know, affluent parents that supported us. And it was all kind of just scrappy kids kind of making way and making our, making do with whatever we had and whatever means we could. And, you know, the, the chance to, to have $500 to buy an outerwear kit was just unthinkable in any other way except that. But You know, Temple said it was the coolest gear around. So in, you did do them a favor. Marketing-wise, for North Face, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it. it's it's something that, you know, it is what it is. I'm not necessarily proud of condoning that behavior, and uh, but hopefully we put it out there enough that they sold a couple more units to make up for that loss. So I want to know, you know, you're growing up, you're, you got your 168 Kinetic. How did you go from... Jamie that is learning to snowboard, you know, figuring it out to, you know, getting, getting your first sponsor and who was your first sponsor? Um, you know, a lot of those early days, it was the inspiration and, and riding with the, that FGH crew, you know, like we really, we grew up skateboarding. And then when we started snowboarding together, they were really instrumental for each other to push each other to get to a level that we were figuring it out. And then uh, it was through the Northwest Series contest that really opened me up to a bigger world of possibility with snowboarding. And through those contest series, I think I made, you know, the acquaintance of the Cummins family, Matt and Temple. And Matt gave me the chance to ride for his shop at the time, Northwest Snowboards. And if you rode for the shop, you got one free board a year. And at the time, he was riding for GNU. So that was my introduction to Mike and Pete in GNU by getting a free shop board. And, um, you know, went. I was in the junior division and did fairly well in the overall series. I think I was the overall series champion or, or second or, and... And then that kind of got the attention of, like, Mike and Pete. And then it became more of, like, a flow deal from them. You know, we'll give you a board or give you a couple boards. And that's how that relationship started was through the the Matt and Temple and the Cummins family, man. I, I owe them huge for for introducing me to Mike and Pete 
And then writing for GNU, uh, there was a period of time where um, they were owned by a company, a windsurf company called Windline. And Windline's team manager was Gwen Howitt from Mount Baker. And I remember Gwen called me in one day to the office and said, hey, this is the deal. Um, Nitro is kind of coming in and taking over GNU. They're going to kind of shelf GNU and it's going to be nitro now so you have a you have the opportunity to make a chance or a decision like you know you can stay with us we're an established company nitro is huge in europe it's kind of a sure shot or you can stick with mike and pete and they're starting this new company called lib technologies and you know them nitro being from europe and not really like you know not really feeling what they were doing I kind of looked towards Matt Cummins as the, you know, like, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? And Matt was just like, I'm back in Mike and Pete. You know, they're they're homies. They're making their boards, and they're, you know, in the Northwest, in our backyard. They're they're from here. They're they're part of what we do and the way we do it, and that's who I'm sticking with. So there was no other choice. You know, I was going to go with Mike and Pete, and then that opened me up to, you know, Folded technologies and that was probably you know, 89 90 and you know that really the only boards that i've ever ridden other than my first or second time riding a burton backhill i've been on gnu or libtech ever since it's been over 30 years wow i wonder if that's like the longest sponsored human right there on snowboard in snowboarding you know, Pro-wise. I think Matt Cummins has got a pro uh, model for, he's got like five five or six years on me as far as having a pro model. I yeah. remember my first time going to Mount Hood, Mount Hood, seeing his pro model and just being blown away. Just life-changing. It's in the East, you didn't really see the lib tech stuff until I got out there. Yeah, Matt, Matt changed the whole, the whole dynamic of like, you know, freestyle snowboarding with that shape and that model that he had the kink nose and it's incredible he just wanted to jib everything you know so it kind of when i when i had the chance then to have my pro model i modeled it off of his existing board as the foundation and when that pro model came it, it uh it was going right like they were selling pretty well at the beginning like the, i heard a rumor that i don't know if this is true but kind of the factory had to evolve in order to kind of manufacture enough of your pro models yeah i think it helped them move out to port angeles and start that manufacturing facility that was kind of created just to be able to facilitate the numbers that we were making with my pro model at the time you know and it was uh i mean it was wild i i it was such a boom in snowboarding we we're just going along for the ride really didn't know what was happening just kind of focused on having fun and doing what we were doing but i look back at the amount of boards that were being sold and distributed and, and Jap Japan market was huge for, you know, Japanese cats would come into shops across the West coast and buy like a hundred boards. So all these shops were ordering these super padded orders and then just backdooring full retail boards to Japan to be distributed and sold for, you know, they're four or 500 bucks here, but they'd be six, seven, eight, 900 bucks over in Japan. So, but it, what it did is like it, it gave us the opportunity to move some product incredible time in snowboarding and i think about this a lot in the fact that 
you were one of the first superstars of snowboarding early days, like of massive superstardom. And I think a lot of people chase, maybe chase that fame. And, you know, I, I've, I'm, I'm kind of curious about this is, you know, did you, did you want to be famous and, and were there negative side effects that came from that like uber fame early on? You know, being just a kid growing up in the Northwest and not really having it be so early in the whole snowboard timeline, you know, we only had a couple role models to look up to, and that was like, you know, Craig and um, Palmer and Kidwell and maybe Dan Donnelly and, and Carter Turk and Jeff Fulton, which were more like, you know, hardcore, Mount Baker hardcore based local guys that had got some recognition but there really wasn't a formula you know we really didn't know what to expect by doing what we were doing the way we were doing it so i never got into it thinking that this was going to be the end game you know we were just going along for the ride and we were riding this wave that was beginning to get big and so it you know there was definitely some repercussions from it sure like uh you know going from like a north the northwest kid not really being in any party scene at all to like introduce to the whole like you know southern california uh, mentality where harder drugs were part of that program you know and, and that that introduced me to things that were kind of a little bit more you know accepted and natural down there but what it did is it sent me home with some you know, some demons that it, for years I, I struggled with, you know, um, addiction based on that introduction of stuff that I'd never been a part of before. And, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of years where I, I you know, struggled with um, addiction from drugs and it got to become more of a lifestyle than it was just a, a party and, and it took me years to try to process that and, and and deal with just where I was at and what I was doing, but then harboring this, like, um, you know, functioning addiction. And, and it really wasn't until I had the help from, you know, my team manager at Volcom at the time, Billy Anderson, that really helped me kind of pull out of this nosedive that I was in and, supported me and gave me the chance to have an option and and that option was he introduced me to Jeff Pensiero up at Baldface and and that gave me the chance because throughout the years like I, I had started distancing myself from what I truly loved and focused more on you know the drug aspect of life and and that got me away from snowboarding and what billy did and jeff did was reconnected me with that and gave me the chance to get back to doing something that i loved gave me a focus and reconnected me with just riding epic powder up in canada you know and it really pulled me out of something that i was gonna be a dead end you know uh, sooner or later and there was a lot of casualties from that experience too that i'd you know, I try not to have any regrets, but there's a lot of things that happened in that timeline that I look back on. I was just like, I'm so sorry. You know, I really apologize for 
you know, all the, I never answered my phone. I would, you know, I was trying to deal with, you know, thinking I was going to start a family with this woman and got married and, and that deteriorated because of, um, you know, my addiction. It was really tough. But it's been years of trying to get back to my roots and foundation and, you know, Jeff and his family and Baldface has been that reconnection. So huge, huge thanks to Jeff for and Billy, really. Those two guys were huge. Love that. God bless him. It's awesome that your uh, snowboarding brought you back, you know. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, it was such a, like, uh, just a humble inception, like get, getting, you know, opportunity kind of just stair-stepping up into something that was kind of unknown. We really didn't have any paths laid out in front of us, you know. We didn't have any real formula or a guideline to what to do and how to do it so we're just kind of winging it you know and and it was cool to see where it went and to be a part of that like i feel like i'm so blessed to have the opportunity to be able to have a you know not the bottom floor but a, a brick in that foundation you know that helps build where modern snowboarding is, you know, and, and so proud of that opportunity and so thankful for all the support to get there, but then stoked to see where kids have taken it nowadays, you know, and something that I could stand back and be proud of and to still be a part of it. It's an amazing opportunity, you know. I still love it just as much now as I did when I was that 14-year-old kid and driving a Ford Granada around. Incredible. And for our listeners that are, you know, don't know, I w- I'd like to provide a little context because it seems like snowboarding was at a place where uh, before you came along, it could have gone a couple different directions. Like hard booting was was still was popular and, and you took it and we're like, no, I'm going to I'm going to go huge and do it with good style. And, and the rest of the industry is like, oh, yeah, we're we're not going this direction or this is you were kind of the, the compass pointing snowboarding in the right direction do you, do you have any elaboration on that yeah i mean I, I think you know contests were the driving factor of your success in snowboarding when i started and watching craig kelly go out and like you know do all the world cup events and be on that stage on a you know a world stage but it was all contests and the contests were half pipe giant slalom and slalom so when i started doing the northwest series that was our disciplines that we had to adhere to to be able to you know have the overall point total to go and then we're looking for placings and and that's how you built your momentum to then find sponsorships to support you so when we had the chance to kind of get a break away from that and started you know, doing more uh, film trips with like Fall Line Films and, and Mac Dog, um, it changed the whole dynamic that you could not be, not adhere to that contest formula, but go out and free ride and have fun and ride everything and then showcase it with the films that came out. So that changed like, okay, it gave it that marketing sensibility and marketing opportunity to just go out and free ride you document it, you put it in a killer segment, it drops into an awesome film project, and then that's that's enough. You know, and so it's that kind of changed the whole dynamic of what, you know, how you could be a snowboarder and be successful, but kind of do it on your own. You know, do it on your own terms and, and have so much fun with it without the structure of a judging criteria. 
Well said. Uh, before we get into all those films and stuff, I, I got to ask, I heard a cool story about how you graduated high school. You know, I I started traveling pretty early with snowboarding and it and it and it didn't give me like and, and we were going up and going snowboard at night till ten thirty. So school was kind of like an afterthought, you know. So I, I really I had I think I failed physical education in my sophomore year just because I wasn't really into it, you know. Like we would go out and skate and we'd go snowboarding and that was our that was our workout, you know, and, and I just, I got into a gym with like weights and football and I was never really into structured academic sports and never really could take a coach telling me what to do and when to do it and how to do it. So never really connected with that. But through that process of, of school, I started not looking like I was going to be able to graduate. So I did two things. I won, I took a night course. I went, went into a counselor and the counselor was like, Hey, like, you're getting paid for snowboarding. You're getting a chance to travel the world. That's way more opportunity than 90% of these people that are going to graduate from this high school are ever going to get a chance to experience. So you're sitting or having this school counselor telling me that I should essentially drop out and continue what I was doing. And I took it as like, man, I can't give up on 11, 12 years of being committed to going to school just to get to the finish line and just bounce, you know? So I thought, what are my options? And the options was taking a college course um, to try to get some extra credits. And and I was kind of in artwork, so I found a community college that had like an art and design course. So I went at night and committed to like taking this computer graphic course at the community college that helped me get some credits and then the other one is like you could go and you can get on to job training so if you had a job outside of school you could go and work and then you'd have to have them sign this piece of paper that said you know that you had this job well I didn't really have any like you know real job set up but Pete Sari said, hey, if you want to come up to LibTech, to the factory, we'll set you up in the attic with this other guy, Nick Russian, who was doing art and graphics design for LibTech at the time. And he said, we'll set you up in this room with a bunch of toxic screen print paints, and you can put on a mask, and you can do these art top sheets, which are essentially just dripping screen print paint on a clear top sheet material, and then taking a squeegee and squeeze, you know, smearing it down the top sheet. So... I would go up after school, sit there for hours, and do art tops. And then every once in a while after the fifth or sixth art top sheet, Nick and I would take one and we'd do like a custom art one and throw it in the stack. And then we knew that when it came through production, it wouldn't be sold, so it was something that we could get kicked back on. But that was really instrumental in allowing me to get the credits to graduate from high school is Pete Sari's opportunity to give me on-job training credit for doing art and graphics for LibTech boards. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about Liquid Death. Buds and I murder Liquid Death on the regular. You may be cruising around your local grocery store and see, oh, there's a tall can of Liquid Death. Why is there beer in the water section? It's not It's not beer. It's water, Buds. It's, it's mountain spring water, right? Why, so why do they call it Liquid Death, Buds? Because it's going to brutally murder your thirst like a serial killer out there. Get rid of the uh, dehydration and hydrate. 
They also donate a portion of their profits to every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. Yeah, death to plastic. Death to plastic. They also got great merch. They got hoodies, T-shirts, cool collabs with Nixon. Dude, I wear that pink uh, hoodie, and it's awesome. The the Whoever's doing their graphics over there is killing it. You can find Liquid Death Mountain Water on Amazon or at a retailer near you. And the Bombhole listeners get 20% off their first Liquid Death apparel purchase, available exclusively at liquiddeath.com slash bombhole. Again, that's liquiddeath.com slash bombhole. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Aaron Bittner. I got to go ride this Burton Hometown Hero from their family tree line. Overall, first impression was this board is a all-mountain beast. It can do anything. It's a really fun directional camber, great flex pattern and side cut. Really fun and playful board, but can still handle some choppy snow and variable conditions. If you want to see the full review that I did on this board, head over to the Bombhole YouTube channel. If you want to check out this gear, head on over to Burton.com. All right, now earlier you mentioned uh, Billy Anderson, and we happen to have a guest question from the man himself. Here we go. Hello, Bomb Holt. This is Billy Anderson, and I have a question for Jamie. Jamie, your legacy has been defined by style. The two things that stick out to me is your method and not wearing gloves. My question is, was that a conscious decision to not wear gloves, or did you simply forget them on a regular basis? Look forward to hearing your answer. Thanks. Oh, yeah, Billy. Love you, brother. Um, Good question. The whole glove thing kind of goes back to the method stuff. You know, it was like I grew up skateboarding and you never wore gloves when you skateboarded. So it just felt way more natural and comfortable to be able to grab and especially grab your board and kick out a method without gloves on. So it I mean, there would be definitely times when I'd be in a spot and, you know, I'm pretty bad at losing everything that's not attached. And, um, but just every time that I could, you know, of course in the winter, you wear gloves. You can't ride without gloves in the winter time. It's, you know, it's painful. But every springtime session, every summertime Mount Hood session, it was, no other choice than to ride without gloves and it just gave me the opportunity to grab and and to be able to have more control when i did grab and especially you know be able to kick out methods it just gave that grip that you had a connection to with your board we have a print um that sean sullivan shot of you doing a method with no gloves at mount hood that's going to be available on uh our website that hopefully you'll sign if you're kind enough. Yeah, but uh, no it's awesome because you can totally just see that that grip. Is that why yeah. skateboarding methods? Is that why you grab between the feet? Um, you know, it, that's always been a question about where I grab the board, and yes. I've, I've always grabbed above the bindings. I've never done a method where I grabbed in between the bindings. Oh, really? Yeah. That's it, so it was a Patreon question from like three people: is why did you grab between the feet? Yeah, but like you I, didn't. I never did. It was always right, right above, right above the binding, as close to the binding yeah. as I could, because then when I pulled it back, it gave you more leverage to kick it out. Yeah, we have two photos of you doing methods, and it's not behind or it's not in between. So that's why I was wondering why all these Patreon people were saying yeah. between so the feet. Let Let's talk uh, about methods and exactly where you got your inspo like where did you pull your inspiration from and, and who are some of the the great method people out there 
Uh, I mean, early on, it was definitely through skateboarding. And, um, you know, the the Bones Brigade movies and, and watching them hit fly ramps. And it was all early grab stuff, but there was, you know, a Steve Caballero off a of fly ramp could kick out a proper method. And there was also Jesse Martinez who really would flap out sideways where he kicked his board and it was kind of more flat than anything out in front of him. And it was kind of a, a twist and kick to it that gave, you know, it had a certain style. It wasn't just like Krishna Soy would blast, but he would really open up and it would like kick it out to the side. But those guys, like especially Cab, would kick it out in front of him and really kick his back foot out to where it was more in front and leading than anything else. So that was something that like was hugely in, in, inspirational to when we did get on a snowboard to try to replicate that style. And then, uh, you know, a method is like the easiest trick to do, but the hardest trick to do right. You know, and I think uh, everybody's got their own interpretation. You can never really, I can't really place one above the other though. Like everybody's got their own stuff and, and as long as they're doing it, that's what matters. And, but, you know, a good method, there's something that feels right about when it's done and it's done proper. And, and there's a lot of kids out there that have taken that and really shined, you know, and stoked to see it. Awesome. Uh, love the method talk. Your name comes up on the show all the time uh, in regards to methods and whatnot. Now, now, earlier you talked about doing art and getting into art when you're in high school. And, you know, early lib boards. And, and I, I think it's important to talk about how snowboarding goes far beyond just athletic prowess. Um, you know, art and snowboarding coincide in, in the culture and the fabric of our sport. And I kind of just wanted to tee up if you wanted to maybe talk about the parallels between art and snowboarding. Um, for me, with with artwork and and how it related to snowboarding, it was kind of like um, it really started when I had the chance to have my first pro model with LipTech, and I had grown up with really looking up to the skateboarders that were also artists: Mark Gonzalez, Neil Blender, Chris Miller was hugely inspirational and. And I saw them use their skateboard as a vehicle for self-expression, not only in their ability to skate, but also the graphics that they utilized for their boards. So I always thought if I had that chance with snowboarding, there would be no other way to do it. And I think I was still a senior in high school when I started working on ideas to try to develop my first board graphic. But over the years, through that process of each year trying to come up with a new board graphic, it always had something where it, throughout the year I would keep my eyes open for inspiration or have a sketchbook where I would sketch or paint different things that could be, you know, I never really painted something that was like, okay, this is going to be my board graphic, you know, and it's on a board shape. I would just paint random stuff, you know, found objects sheets of masonite whatever i could and then when it came to like figuring out what the board graphic was going to be i would just lay out all these options and see which one was best suited for it you know but it really that chance really helped me develop as an artist but you know it was never i don't think i ever really had much like 
technical ability. I just always liked the fact that like you could just be you and, and be free to express and create. And, and that was, that was you as a person. That was your individual characteristic that made you your own. And I saw that and like, you know, Gons is an incredibly accomplished artist, but his graphics were so simple you know, and so straightforward and easy that you could digest it easily. And it was something that I, when you looked at his pieces, you knew that it was his stuff, you know, and that really, really was drawn to that. So I think when I started trying to do graphics, it was kind of in that same vein or, or just my own interpretation of it. But, you know, the freedom to be, you know, to self-express, it, it translates to snowboarding. You know, like I look at a big open, wide open field of field of powder and I think, you know, what a beautiful blank canvas. What kind of picture are you going to paint coming down? You know, like you could do a nice, smooth, drawn out powder turn or you could pick it apart in a technical descent, hit a bump, hit a pillow, hit a cliff. You know, it's just uh, and that's your art. You know, that's your opportunity to self-express. Beautifully worded. Um, I, I got to ask, I'm curious as also a form of when you do your art, you seem to like, I've seen you maybe around bald face and you're just do you were just be constantly doodling and constantly just kind of like, you know, pen to paper is, do you also view it as a, as a form of escapism at all? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, the, I always had the feeling that when I was into something and I was sketching or drawing, there could be like a riot going on behind me and I would just be oblivious to it, you know, because it was so, you know, you had that focus of just being into what you're doing. And there's some, you know, it's therapeutic too. It like helps you get in your own head and you kind of work out the process with yourself. And it's time to like, you know, have a conversation with your subconscious, you know, and really kind of get into uh, visuals that you might have in your in your head, and then how to translate that out into what comes out on paper or canvas. How often do you find yourself doing art? I mean, there's times when it's more prevalent than others. You know, there's definitely periods of time where I take a break from it. You know, and you know that you know there was a lot of like, you know the my prolificness with art was kind of based upon some of the more negative vices that I had in my life at certain times. And once I distanced myself from that, um, being used as like a medium for the end means of it, it, it ha had put me in a position to kind of recalibrate my approach and be a little bit more deliberate with what I was doing and the way I was doing it. And, uh, you know, when I started um, working with Scope and doing the stuff that is now 1910, on the early days of doing it, I, and I th Gooch was a huge influential factor in that too. I think we had got together um, when Travis was doing Ace Symbol, and we all got together in Jackson Hole, and, and we set up a canvas, and it was like, all right, you guys, here's like an opportunity for you guys to get down on this canvas, and like we really hadn't painted all together at one point in time. Um, at all so when we we sat down and we you know the communication the inspiration we all kind of knew where we were coming from so 
we developed this collaboration canvas that was just awesome you know like the experience was super fun our communication was right on um it was like this orchestrated dance of like we'd hang out watch gooch paint and then we'd get stoked to then embellish what he had laid down and then we'd back off and then you know scope would slide in and and everything at the end of the the time on this canvas was something that we were really stoked and proud of we we're like holy crap that was awesome that was a great great opportunity how could we do more of this you know but that there's i've never really experienced that kind of people out there that you can get together and have that kind of relationship with on one canvas it's really rare and um gooch is definitely one of them and um you know i've just fortunately been able to connect with scope a little bit more and have more opportunity to kind of develop that process all right speaking of 1910 uh we got Scoff in the booth, who's a big part of it, um, and I'd, I'd love for you guys to kind of explain to listeners what what exactly it is that you guys got going on with it. Thanks, man. Long time listener, first time Brit. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's right, isn't it? Maybe first UK in the that's in the booth. First yeah, first Brit, UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Nineteen ten, I guess it came all came about on the back of just me and Jim just. I think we spent like a year um, back to back just on the road traveling and making a, a shit ton of art basically. It started over in Denver at SIA doing stuff for Volcom and Vans and then took like a month off, CE agrees, um, took like a month off and then we met up in Norway, then it went to France, Spain, uh, Tokyo after that. Yeah. Yeah, it started up in uh in in Norway with a uh, friend PJ. Yeah. Um uh, Shallow Tree and he put an art show together that kind of invited us um, a bunch of artists from the community to come up and be a part of an art show and he had this beautiful farmhouse. It was about an hour south of Oslo. Uh Scope and I got in about what a week or two early. Yeah. And uh went straight away to an art store, got a roll of canvas and you know a bunch of rattle cans and took it back to pj's farm and we sat there in his barn for like a week and just you know put up panels and canvases and just started painting and and you know did a lot of stuff really easy and really quick and stuff that we were stoked at the end result at the end and and then after that show, we got a chance to go down to south coast of France to Volcom Europe, where they're located in Hosker Biarritz area, and did a couple projects for them, just kicking around. But then they gave us opportunity to do this big mural project on the rooftop, and we did this mural. Um, stoked on the outcome, really fun. The whole process. The one thing that I really enjoy working with Scope is the opportunity, like we, great communication. Um, really open with what we do and the way that we do it where we talk about it before to when we get to the actual execution it's just like you know hit play and let it go and it's just really easy orchestrated process and it's a no-brainer and it? it's like yeah. you know when you overthink anything that you overthink in life basically but it's just one of the things when you don't overthink it it just flows just so easy and by the time we get around to it, like, yeah, Jim does his stuff, I do mine, and a big part of that is, like, you got to trust who you're working with, and I don't even have to think anymore. You know, I know Jim will handle his side of it, and 
I just do my thing, and by the end of it, I've done pieces before with him, and it's just we've not we've hardly spoke. We've just listened to our music and just cracked on and got involved, and then you know, oh shit, it's a big painting. You know what I mean? And it's when you can get that with another artist or or whatever, it's a pretty sick. Um, I don't know what the word is, but it's just a really good outcome. You know, like it's it's few and far between that you can do that with another artist, and especially in our industry that. It's cool to be able to work with someone. I mean, I'm involved with the same brands as Jim, but over the pond and being able to come together and part of that is through LibTech and through the brands we work with that give us these opportunities that we're like, oh shit, let alone we're doing that, but you're doing with a good mate, you know, and anything you do like you guys know, you, the two of you seem good mates and solid and that, and anything you do with a, a mate that works well, that's what it's all about, you know. Yeah, always a pleasure, never a chore. Yeah, always a pleasure, never a chore. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear you guys talk about your guys' styles and how they work together because, you know, uh, Scope, you're like kind of dark metal kind of uh, and and just like really, really just an incredible artist to the core and and mix with, with Jamie's, you know, Northwest style. I, I'd love to kind of hear you guys elaborate on, on your different styles and how they work together. You know, I, I think that uh, the way that we have this, like, dynamic that I think really kind of works is, like, we have a, you know, he he's a, it's got a, a very wide latitude and diverse style and approach to where he can kind of fit in to whatever I'm doing or, you know, like, I, I, his stuff was really kind of more elaborate and layered and I would have him just pull a couple of, like, totems off of this, you know, more complicated composition and then simplify it and then be able to embellish a background and do it in a way that my application was kind of like, um, you know, I'd use spray paint a lot, Montana, and my outlines would be kind of fuzzy and diffused and... You used to boil my piss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, the best, clean, in the best right? in the best, sense, it'd be like, I'd do something, then there'd be a bit of overspray, oh, Christ almighty. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's his, that thing we've got back and forth, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's fun, it's good. Yeah, his, his approach was a little bit more crisp and refined, and he would do his fills and his detail and would do a really beautiful, clean, crisp outline to finish, you know. So if I went in there and blew my shit and made a mess, he could come in and trap all that. But the the way that that layered together and our, our color palette was really similar and our line shape size was pretty similar. So when we did get together on a composition or a collab, it fit and it worked kind of well other than most together, you know, and, and his crisp outline finish would give it this, um, you know, pop it to the foreground when my stuff would kind of be more of a diffused background, middle ground look to it. And, and then just after years of kind of working like that, we developed kind of a catalog and an understanding of how to approach different pieces and it made it easier the more time we had a chance to do it. There's a T-shirt that you guys dropped off for me today where it shows both your artwork together and it's just incredible. It's like it's meant to be pretty much. Your yeah, piece is in the middle and yours kind of is an end, end piece to it. Um, my mm-hmm. question, I guess, is what's 1910 stand for? 19 is S, 10 is J, numerically in the alphabet. So it's just a way to put a moniker together that stands for Jamie and Scove. It was kind of interesting putting a title on it because not only that year that we were traveling together, like we'd done stuff before that as well when we'd ever met up, you know, like because we're affiliated with the same brands and uh, we had those opportunities to do a few pieces here and there. And then when we put a title on it, 
And he's like, well, we've been doing it anyway. But when you get that title and he's like, hey, brother, I got a name. <laughs> and a 1910 pops up and I'm like, what? Hey, brother. Pretty good JV yeah. impersonation. Yeah, yeah spent a bit of time together, haven't we? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'd always sign the pieces separately, but it was a way to kind of put a stamp on it that, you know, was yeah. a collaborative effort in one one title. So where where is this thing headed right now? And, and what's the plans for the future? And, and how can people support? Oh, I mean, it, we, we, I mean, we did a lot of pieces together that went in different in channels but a lot of the pieces that we do were these bigger mural pieces or bigger panels that aren't really accessible or approachable to the general public and so taking on and, and developing more merch based upon that bigger artwork where we just took shots of it scaled it down um, provide prints we're doing tees hoodies um, hats and beanies a simple merch program but um or we got a website coming out and we've been just doing a lot of like DM stuff through Instagram, which is underscore nine teen ten underscore written out. And um It's nice just to stoke stoke people out on the work, you know. Like when you can see that building people are just into it. It's it's quite a nice thing and so the as so long as we've got support and so long as we've got people stoked about the artwork, then the, the more we'll do it. But it's just kind of, it can be it can be something, it can be nothing, you know. It, it, yeah. So long as it just flows, I mean, opportunities like this to be able to go up on a wall and stuff, it just puts it out there that little bit more. And being able to even give you guys stuff, it's just getting it under people's noses that, you know, a lot of people ask when's the merch coming out and things like that. And we're just ironing out the creases at the minute. But... Yeah, and I think the process that we've developed and the experiences we've had have been so enjoyable and so fun. Putting a package together to then have the opportunity to share all that with other people is something that we'd love to do. Uh, all right, Jamie, well, I heard you guys have a little piece of art here for us. Yeah, we brought a little piece. Let's uh, let's open it up and crack it and see what's up. Well, we got two options. We might give this to a Patreon member, but if we really like it, we might just keep it. But what do you think? <laughs> Probably a good chance we're going to like it, though. <laughs> Don't be polite if you don't like it. You know both. Of it. <laughs> I haven't oh, seen much. I didn't like. Damn, oh, damn, dude. Wow, that thing. That might have to hang in the office. That's got. You know that we might have to keep that. Here. I'm sorry. sorry. Sorry, Patreon member. <laughs> we love you guys, but wow, that's a little that's too so, sick. Yeah. I'll throw it behind behind us here, dude. Yeah, look at that. So there you see. It's a little piece we call the Midnight Howler. That's yeah. incredible. Are people going to be able to get this type of stuff on your website once it's launched? Yeah, we, we did offer this as kind of a, a limited um, yeah. uh, signed piece. And uh, we'll probably do a more of an open-ended print. I don't know if it'll be the same size, but uh, you know, I think we do offer that. Just different through, and yeah. different types of things as you evolve, I imagine, as a company, yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, that, I have a feeling people are going to go nuts over this kind of stuff that, if that, they have the, uh, the ability to be able to get it, you know? You know, the, there was a run that we had that Schofield alluded to where we started in Norway, went to France, took us down to Spain. Japan caught wind of what we were doing at Volcom Europe and said, hey, we got a 20th anniversary to one of our Volcom stores in Harajuku. How do you guys feel about coming over and hanging out for a couple of weeks and, and building a... a you know, a body of work and then having an art show that kind of uh, coincided with this 20-year anniversary. So mm. went from France, um, 
over to Japan, spent two weeks on BMX bikes, painting, you know, cruising around during the day, painting at night, and just kind of developed 24 pieces in 14 days. Um, yeah. Had an art show that kind of showcased those works, sold out the art show, took that momentum and went to California, did a mural for Volcom. Um, Vans invited us to be a part of their new headquarters grand opening where we did a live mural presentation there. And then I think I went home for like a week and then I got a text message to say, hey, come back to London for another human nature art show in London. So we had this like essentially a year stretch of it was just like the, back to back. What did we coin it? I think we coined it the highway to human nature or something. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it was like a, it was yeah. a wild, wild series of events all across the world, you know, and just like having the chance to leapfrog from one fun art experience to another, and like we might have sold a piece here and there to help fund that, you know, to help get us into the next stage. But it, we really didn't do it with that in mind, you know. It was never like, mm -hmm. hey, this is our goal. We're gonna go out and try to like pump this big tour. It was just like opening ourselves up to that experience and allowing that wave to kind of carry us through all the way through and and also we had a lot of support from like the brands that support us you know like vans had come up with an idea that we could go and earn a bit of cash to keep us going and then volcom did and there's what there's a, like a trip that you know you can't really remember it because there's that much stuff went off but you'll never forget it it was like so much happened man in a year but uh your artwork together is just incredible. Yes, yeah, Scope, I'd like to kind of ask you particularly about your art, you know, seeing... It's all smoke and mirrors, mate. It's piss <laughs> up. <laughs> it's, people might recognize it from, you know, Travis's new board and, and a lot of the lib stuff. Uh, where, yeah, where's your, where's your inspiration? This is a dog shit question, I'm sorry. But yeah, where's the inspiration come from it? Yeah, you're right there, Christopher. It's a really shit question. <laughs> no. Um, to be honest, mate, it's, uh, a lot of it's from music lyrics stuff like that stuff that i can just get lost in like music i think it's like anything it's like an international language and you can put that into however you create you know like even if you go shredding or something you listen to music or if you're painting a picture you are or you can put your favorite album on and just listen and paint away and something comes from that and something doesn't like a lot of a lot of my inspiration comes from that. A lot of inspiration comes from other artists. I try and stay away from Instagram and things like that because there's that much band, you know, things going off that I can't, I ain't got enough bandwidth to deal with it. So I try and just keep on my own what I like. I, I paint what I like to see rather than follow, do something that someone's into, you know, like even though you do make art for someone to be into it, but you don't go out there to do it like that. I like painting wolf heads, so... I'll do that, and if someone don't like wolves, then tough look. But you know, that kind of—I just do it my own way. And music's a big inspiration to that. Whether it's Motorhead, Sabbath, Fu Manchu, all the bands that I'm into. Um, yeah, I think it, it comes from a lot of that, you know. But also, the collaboration stuff—it comes from other artists. Save for Jim, like I always pick things up, and it opens me up to a little bit rather than working within myself and just doing the same shit all the time. But I can do jobs. For instance, the Travis one you just mentioned, man, like, he came out with the idea and I had no clue what he was talking about. He was like, I've got this idea, Belevolent Aliens, and I'm like, sorry, what? And he's like, what, can you put this into a a snowboard graphic? And we went back and forth on a few ideas, and to be honest, I was so confused by it. 
and sometimes how intense it can be about stuff and he was sending me links to documentaries on YouTube and books to read and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, bloody hell, this is hard work. <laughs> and, and in the end, it's just, I had to ask a friend, in fact, a friend that, that, that Jimbo's met, uh, a guy called Thrashmore, and I called him up and said, what, what, do you, what do you know about benevolent aliens? And he's like, he's an astrophysician, so he's like on the verge of being a genius and a madman. And he went, I'll tell you what, and we're in this conversation for about an hour. Then he ended it, he went, so that's what malevolent aliens are. And I went, no, I said benevolent. So he went on for another 45 minutes. <laughs> but in the end, I actually, he broke it down for, for me to understand what it meant. So that's how Travis's graphic kind of happened. But whilst that process was happening, I'm like, right, I've got that. I've got this idea. I can listen to my music and try and get into it. And then a few sketches and here and there, and you, it just kind of starts flowing, man. It's, it's a, Like I said before, I don't think about it that much. And as soon as I do, it slows things down. It, kind of stops me from doing my process, you know? Like, as soon as you start thinking about something that much, it that's how it usually works, man. It's kind of long-winded, the answer, but that's all I can... Great answer. Um, Great answer. I remember that Pat Moore jacket we were talking about earlier. That is an awesome piece, too, that you did with Volcom. Yeah, that was a good laugh, man. It was, um, like I said, Pat's a sound bloke, and he, he, he reminds me of a lot of people where I'm from back home, very working class and very, like, just get down and get involved in craft, you know? Um, and the opportunity to work with Pat was pretty fun because he just gave me all these ideas about New Hampshire, um, and he wanted an original painting as well, so I thought, well, go all in and do a piece for him, and then it just got translated into the inside of a jacket, and, um, yeah, it, it it was fun doing that one with Pat because he's a... It's all, like I said, don't work with dickheads. It's nice not to... When it's a nice guy to work with and they're not dickheads, then shit flows a little bit better, so, um, yeah. Work I, with the people you like. Great advice. I, I got another question for both of you guys in regards to art. I feel like we live in this uh, this world of distraction, right? And and uh, I got a quote. I've mentioned it on air before, but in my office, and, and it's it. Uh, an addiction to distraction is the death of creative production. And I think it speaks on our culture and our society these days, it's especially with the phones. It's it um it can suck you in. So so in in that. Uh, in, in in wind of talking about creative production and making paintings, uh, how do you guys battle the distraction and get down and, and make it happen? Oh, I, th- I think it's it, it makes it pretty easy when we get together. Just the fact that we, if we have an idea, um, we take that idea, nail it down, and then just communicate the process and we talk about the colors and we talk about you know the composition and we talk about the weight of it all and and the the depth of you know and and what we kind of want to accomplish with the piece and then it 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 makes it so much easier to actually execute because we've laid out this groundwork that makes and just the that process makes it to where there's really no hang-ups you know you're really not blocked by anything it just tears down all those gates and and walls to when you're doing it it's just do it and enjoy the process while you're doing it you know it's still so all those distractions don't it? it's like it yeah. it shuts everything off it's it's like when i mentioned when you try and stay away from instagram when you're working and looking at other artists and all the rest of it that there's so much to distract you nowadays that I'm, and I'm surprised that hardly anyone gets anything done. Do you know what I mean? It, it's it's just ridiculous. I'm I'm glad that I am at the age that I am now, and I'm not a young kid. Like 
with all the bandwidth they've got to take on. And it's like it, a lot of stuff gets lost in the distractions. And that's why it's nice, you know, when, like Jim says, it's like when you've got a rapport going off and you can communicate well and all the rest of it, all these dis distractions just disappear, you know. It's, it's uh, I can't even, I'm trying to think about that little quote you just said, then I'm trying to get it in my head again. What is it? An addiction to distraction is the death of creative production. Nice. I'll probably know. I'll probably have to ask you that again. <laughs> yeah. You know what? What, uh, what we've been up to lately is we're working on a mural project at Salty Peaks in Salt Lake, and uh, uh, we're LibTech and Volcom allowed us the opportunity to paint the front facade panels on the shop, and the only thing that's really been the distraction has been the weather. You know, we waited till end of October to try to do an outside mural. Uh, the the weekend we get down here was the weekend summer. You know, mm. was laid, put to bed, and winter <laughs> reared its ugly head, and and just dancing around the weather and the rain and the snow to try to get a mural done in a certain timeline. You know, that's really the only thing that's been distracting us from the process. But and occasionally the shop owner looks a bit like Triple H, <laughs> looks like that wrestler Triple H a little bit, and when he comes up, it's. He yeah. sometimes distracts him, but puff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bless Dennis, though. Thank, big big yeah, shout out to Salty life. Peaks for yeah. having us out and, and yeah. getting a chance to share what we've been doing. That wasn't any disrespectful. I'll just be <laughs> honest. <he looks laughs> like no, he, that's yeah. rad you guys are doing that for Salty Peaks. I can't wait to check that out. Yeah, and it has—it's been uh, nice out for the past like eight months. I hasn't know. rained. It's been <laughs> you the best summer. It's brought the weather. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. needed that snow it, though. It was a beautiful stretch, but then when it hit, it it hit kind of hard, and it, it got mm. people out of that you know summertime funk and getting ready for the seasons. It's good to see the energy and everyone frothing to get up there and start the winter. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and talk to you guys about Bub's Naturals. Now, first things first, the coolest thing about Bub's is the fact that it's owned by snowboarders. So it's uh, snowboarders for snowboarders. You know, they support the show. So might as well support them. With that being said, uh, Jeremy, you broke both of your legs in an avalanche a few years ago, and I know you used some some bubs for your road to recovery. How did it help? It grew my bones back. I mean, straight up. I had the doctor, you know, at two years in tell me I needed another surgery, bigger rods. Uh, the bone wasn't going to grow back. I didn't like the sound of it. Um, I got on the bubs consistent and over the course of two years, I grew a ton of bone back enough for my right leg to remodel and, and do its thing and become strong again. Uh, awesome skin. Um, you know, my nails grow like crazy, uh, joints move smooth. I mean, it, it lubed me up good. I notice when I don't take it, I mean, immediately really cool. Well, it's a, it's a protein powder. So how do you, how do you take this stuff? I mean, however you want. I prefer it in, in tea, coffee, um, smoothies. Smoothies is my favorite. That's kind of the morning jam. And, uh, but really the, the protein powder is tasteless. So you could even do it in water. I don't recommend that. There's better ways. It's just more enjoyable. I like it with a little coffee. Yeah. That's the way to go. And if you're interested in picking up some bubs, uh, 10% of all profits go to charity, which is cool. But you can head on over to bubsnaturals.com. Use promo code BOMBHOLE, all lowercase. Again, promo code BOMBHOLE at bubsnatural.com for 15% off. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about our new sponsor, DB. 
Yeah, we have a new partner this winter, and they are a travel brand designed in Scandinavia. Built for the journey, DB's products feature the hookup system. And the cool thing about this is you can carry your board bag, your wheeler bag, and your backpack all with one single hand. Yeah, these are some quality bags, buds. They feature rib cage technology, ensuring all your gear is protected. DB is the brand for award-winning snow travel gear. It's backed by some of the best, Sage Kotzenberg, Kevin Backstrom, Estelle Pensiero, and Gimbal God, and many more. If you want to find out more, you can follow DB at DB Journey. That is at D-B-J-O-U-R-N-E-Y. On IG, or if you want to go on their website, head on over to dbjourney.com and sign up for the DB Black Membership. and Be the first to know when their new Sage Kotzenberg line drops this winter. And the best hooked-up luggage ride this winter wins a full Sage Kossenberg Edition travel collection. So be sure to check them out on Instagram at dbjourney and head on over to their website, dbjourney.com. Quality board bags, roller bags, backpacks, some of the best you can find. We're just so out of place. I was like, where the heck are these guys coming from? You know, what is their story? And come to find out that it was Richard and Tucker and that they were kicking off this new thing called Volcom. And then I think that was summertime in the winter. Um, Steve Graham had came up to Baker and spent some time up there. So we were able to kind of meet and connect. And he invited us down to Tahoe to come and join him and go ride down there. And... Uh, so it was me and my girlfriend at the time, Cersei Wallace. Big shout out to Cersei. Say hi. How's it going? Um, we go down to Tahoe, meet up with Steve Graham, and uh, he's staying with, I think it was Jerry Dugan or Arthur Crable from Fallline Films. And this is where Dave Sioni was living at the time, and Steve was staying with Dave. And it was somewhere in Donner near the lake, and we get down there right as the storm hits. And it was a typical Tahoe storm that once it started, it didn't let up till it snowed about eight feet. And it locked us into the house to where we couldn't really leave. But what was special about that opportunity is like Dave was in the process of the beginning edits of Roadkill. So we sat there for seven, six, seven days straight watching him edit the opening montage of Roadkill. And when you talk about, like, uh, you guys do a, a, a bit where it's, like, name that soundtrack, video soundtrack. You know, I, I'm not really good at that. I'm not really, you know, I, like, I've watched a million snowboard films, but there's been so many. And the early ones, I've kind of forgotten. There's a couple highlights that I can remember. But I'm not the best when it comes to, like, uh, uh, you know, recollection of soundtrack library. But this song, it was no effects, better than a stick in the eye, and it played in rotation nonstop for a week straight. He would edit a bit, slide it back, re you know, stack a clip, play the song again. So this opening, do 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 do, it gives me chills <laughs> when I think about it or even say it now because it's it was a special movie and it's awesome. But um, we stayed for a week, couldn't leave to go two blocks down to the store because there was so much snow. But in typical Tahoe fashion, when the storm broke, it went blue. And it was just amazing. That's when we went and filmed the segment for the Sugar Bowl and the Donner Summit ASI session. I think it was Sugar Bowl with Rippy, Steve, Cersei, and myself. 
And um, another cat that came down with us, this guy named Coulter, who was part of that FGHC crew. Um, and then we had a session at Donner at ASI, and that's where, like, it was with Palmer. I mean, and, and for us, like, you know, always having him, someone that we really looked up to, it was the first time that we were able to, like, ri actually ride with him. It's really cool. I think he had the Bozo the Clown haircut where it was, like, bright red shaved on top. You know, like a plaid quicksilver pant with like a t-shirt or something, just typical Palmer fashion, which was awesome. And then the highlight was like Steve Graham's back 180 off the huge cliff at the Andrew shot for uh, for Roadkill. It was a cool time. But after that, we, um, I mean, it's a long story, but uh, we we needed to get um, we were going to go down to. Uh, Costa Mesa and Steve Graham I think Matt Cummins came on board and 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 we didn't have enough room in the car that we had so we the only thing that we could rent because we were all under 25 was a U-Haul so we rented a U-Haul box truck and and Donner or a Truckee and then drove down 395 and stopped in Mammoth and when we stopped in Mammoth, we connected with these two young kids. One was 14, the other one was 12, and it was Billy and Jeff Anderson. And they were our chaperone and, and our tour guides for Mammoth, and I'd never been down there. And Billy was stoked. He took us right up to the top of the tram, and I think the cliff rock drop's called Hangman's at Mammoth. I followed this 14-year-old kid straight in no speed check and just sent it off the top of hangman's stomped it and i was just like holy shit who is this kid super sick but we chased him around all all day and then and then uh we had dinner with him and his family and i think like i had probably pink or blue hair steve had some kind of wild hairdo and we went and had dinner with billy's parents and we had all beanies on and they're like hey man take off your beanie at the dinner table so we took off our beanies and then they saw our hair and they were just like oh okay you can put them back on <laughs> so we ended up driving down to costa mesa in the u-haul and i think billy or billy or jeff joined us and we only had so much room in the front of the box truck, so people had to ride in the very back. And Jane, Billy's mom, was so sketched on that, she ended up, like, shadowing us. We didn't know this, but she shadowed us the whole six-hour drive down to Costa Mesa to make sure that we made it all safe. But when we got down, we stayed at Steve Graham's house, and Steve Graham said, hey, I'd, um, there's two companies that are kind of starting right now. One's SMP and the other one's Volcom. Give me a day or two, I'll get you some product. You can check it out. So he was the person that first got me my first box of Volcom. And he got me a box of SMP stuff too. And I think there was like an early um, a library ride poster where I'm doing like a shifty and I have an SMP flannel on and like Volcom butterball cotton pants. So it's kind of like that in between time. But I got the SMP stuff and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. But then I opened up the Volcom box. And the Volcom box was just like this bright pink shirt with Madonna. It was like the pinkest punk shirt. And I think it was like a Kelly Green shirt that had like Bill Clinton that said I inhaled and just wild screens and, and wild placement and just huge like branding that was more like dirt bike stuff, you know. And I just I saw that and I saw that that energy that they had on those early pieces. And I was like, you know, this is something that I would want to connect with. And 
he made the introduction, you know, to Volcom, got me my first box, and um, and introduced me to Wooly and Troy and Tucker and Neil Harrison and all those guys that were part of that early Volcom. And I think that was like 93, 92, 93. And then from then on, it was just like, you know, Hey, we you know we don't really have much, but we we'll, you know we'll support you any way we could. And then as um, as the years you know progress, it became something that we you know you see it now and it's everywhere and it's it's really cool to to watch that progression from an early startup. You know, a lot of those guys, you know, their whole story is that they're screen printing shirts in their garage and like just doing it like winging a prayer. But a lot of those guys came from Quicksilver and kind of were pretty marketing savvy. They had a pretty good, you know, idea of what to do and the way to do it. And I know Wooly was working a lot with um, with Quicksilver and doing films with Kelly Slater and getting more into the the you know media side of things. So I think he brought a lot of that energy from Quicksilver and then applied it to what he was doing with Volcom. But just the whole the magic that was created from that and the community that we had while doing it was something that was really special and unique, you know, and it really comes across in the early film projects that we had with them because they would just get everyone together to go up to Mammoth or Sonora or Tioga and just have a session, camp out and just ride. And it was always seemed like, like nowadays it's more of like a production, you know, it's like we're going filming, set up your tripod, you know, they're going to get the shot here. And, and there it was just like, they just, said hey let's let's check out that windlip up there it's got got to get hip on it and then we'd go up and we'd build it and we'd session and they would always be on the peripheral you never really knew that they were filming anything it was all kind of super eight and all kind of low-key and it gave it this like comfort of just like we we're just doing what we were doing and really having a good time doing it and they were always capturing it from the sidelines so that kind of like built this this feeling and vibe that when you watch the film, it just seems like we're all really having a good time. It's because it's the truth, man. It was really a really memorable time in my career and my snowboarding that I look back and it's like, it's really hard to replicate that, you know, but it, there was a certain mystique and magic that happened that was special. I'm going to go back and queue up all these movies and watch them after hearing that. Yeah, especially uh, the the one that comes to mind, you know, most notably being The Garden. And um, I'd love to hear you elaborate. You touched on the fact that it was filmed with 8mm and and just the, the feeling that the film gives to the viewer and, and how that's different than other formats. You know, there's a, there's a home movie quality and feel that comes with the Super 8 reel. You know, it's kind of scratchy, it's kind of flickery, and it's got this kind of texture to it that's not, you know, glazed over, and it's not a big production. And there's something that connects you as a person, I think, to maybe if you were a kid and your parents or grandparents had, like, Super 8 films of you playing out in the backyard or, or doing things as a youth that then when you watch a Super 8 film production, you kind of connect with that early childhood memory. There's something to be said about that, you know, that really, it's raw. Um, you know, it's it's not like, it was a time where you're actually cutting tape to do the edit. You know, you weren't just throwing it in a computer editing process and smoothing out all the kinks. You know, it still had those rollouts at the end of the reel that was flare and do weird things, but it gave it this uh, kind of like um, mood and texture that was unique to it. And 
you know, I know Dave Sione worked a lot with Richard Wolcott on those early films. Uh, he brought a little bit more snowboard cinematography savvy to kind of allow Richard and Troy Eckert to kind of develop their style, what they were doing with those film projects and help them kind of like light meter and, and shoot in the snow because they were all beach dudes, you know, that were into like setting up in the sand and perfect sun and like waves and blue sky and blue water, you know, it's really easy dynamics to work with where the snow is a little bit more fickle. And I know Sione helped a lot helping those guys develop their approach and give them the ability to capture those sessions and, and the way they went down. It was just really cool to be a part of it. Yeah, I love how you said uh, with Volcom, you like, or I love how you remember those first pieces in the first box so long ago, the colors and the prints. Like, that's incredible. That's yeah, cool. I mean, it, it was, it was, um, you know, and just being a part of like, um, uh, they were really inspiring on an art aspect too because I connected with Neil Harrison, the art director at the time, and we just, you know, instantly clicked and had this like relationship where they wanted to include everybody in that creative process. You know, it wasn't just like, hey, this is what we're doing, stand back and let us do it, and then we'll give you the product when it's developed. They like brought people in and made them a part of their family and what they were doing to help create that visual that came out. So I remember like learning a lot of like design, like mentoring from Neil and he had his own mentors from Quicksilver where he came from. But I remember like laying out the library ride movie poster and uh, this guy, Tom McElroy, who is actually the person that designed the Volcom stone Neil called Tom in and Tom came to help Neil out. And I remember Tom going, okay, this is your guys' mantra, black and white with color. So run your color hit background, but do your ransom note cut and paste with all your copy black and white stuff. And you'll, you, you can't go wrong. That's, that's your guys' like, you know, that's your guys' deal. So it, that always stuck in my head. And I remember just like hours and hours sitting on the copy machine, just like cut and pasting weird stuff together. And like, and doing like art projects, like everyone would be included in just art projects. And then they would just gather a bunch of material and just like pick out, okay, that's a t-shirt, you know, that'd be cool. And that'd be good on the poster. And that's going to be a board short print or it was a cool opportunity to learn the process in that kind of art direction sense to develop outerwear and, and t-shirts and merch and stickers and stuff. And they weren't afraid to just take something that was done in 15 minutes and run it, you know, and just turn it into something that became iconic imagery to a brand that's now what it is. That's the the back on which Volcom was built on was was your guys's in those early days. And even even so, the way it speaks to me is also in the the way the movies are done. And I, I love just to highlight the analog way of copy, like physically cutting things and, and, and making things analog. Same with like the Super 8 and even the intros to the movies. You know, there's there's like 100% handmade on like a hand, yeah. right? And, yeah. and Mike Perillo worked in a studio and I think like Wally's Garage or something for months building that, replicating that set out of paper mache and chicken wire. And he built like a full diorama of like Sonora Pass in the garden and did all those hand cut 
intro montage pieces all done by hand and just like it 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 gave that's what really was special about it is it was really handmade and it really gave it that feel that it was more of an art project than a film project you know and it was pre photoshop it was pre procreate it was pre all that computer aided design stuff to where you know you actually did it brushed to canvas handmade cut and paste and then put a super eight on a tripod and and film those stop frame animation stuff it's just it unique but really cool really cool now going back to videos and things like that do you have from those early days do you do you have a, a notable video project or favorite video that you worked on yeah i mean of course going back to those early volcom days those are really special you know the library ride and uh the garden were were stuff that times when you know you're a kid and everything's brand new and then you're uh, coming from washington it was kind of you know you're not really my horizon was pretty limited you know but then going down to california and being open up to this whole new big world of just possibility and and endless fun opportunity it really opened up me to the world of like what what was possible with snowboarding and and those film projects really kind of showcase that time and space but when you go farther along i mean um mac dog i mean i can't say enough about mike mcintyre man amazing human awesome dude got a chance to get you know met him up in mount baker canyon when he was up there filming i think for pocahontas and they were setting up in the canyon on this hip and uh, the snow slides down into the canyon and makes these really cool triangle hips so in the springtime we would just session this hips like a skate park but you could hit them early and go side to side on them or you could hit them with speed and gap them and we had this line at the beginning of the canyon that we were gapping these two triangles and they were setting up on the hip and i don't know exactly who was there maybe noah or roach or something and they were gonna hit this like single hit hip and then the guys that i was riding with the fghc guys we would ride tip to tail nonstop. two guys in the air off the same jump at the same time just like trusting each other's ability to ride in that manner um, it's almost like how you know supercross is you know you're off the same tabletop at the same time doing a whip looking each other in the eye you know that's kind of how it felt riding with these guys so we were bombing into the canyon with speed while they were set up on this hip and we blasted off this gap and gapped a line that they had not they didn't see that opportunity or that that potential of where we had comfortable with so he saw that and he was like, okay, where are you guys coming from? You know, like this is, you know, blew our perspective of what was possible. Made the introduction with him in the parking lot later on. And then he kind of invited me to work on other projects with him. But there's one in particular that I really stand out as being amazing. And it was a meltdown project. And we went to New Zealand and it was with... Dave Lee, Todd Slosher, Joey McGuire, and Peter Line, like a full Northwest crew, heavy. We went into Auckland. We rented two Maui motorhomes, and we spent a month touring the North Island, took the ferry across to the South Island. Um, amazing trip. 
incredible. We surfed Raglan. Uh, Taroa was a highlight. Uh, went down to Christchurch and then went up and did all the ski fields like Porter Heights and Wanaka area. Um, surfed the spot called uh, Kaikura, just north of Christchurch. And we went out and we had this session out on this point break in Kaikura where it was most incredible day beautiful offshore winds blowing the scent of the wildflowers up in these green rolling hills when you're out in the surf in the lineup you could smell the scent from this flower that was up in the hills we get to the beach at the end of the session and and the the wind actually just switched violently and this gale blew in blew the boards out of our hands you know barely got it together got back in the motorhome and we raced north to the ferry and we had to sit, I think it's Wellington or something where the ferry is on the South Island. On the passage from the north to the south, it was the most beautiful passage crossing on a ferry that I'd ever been to. Emerald green water, beautiful islands, like forested islands, beautiful crossing, super placid and mellow. On the way back, when we were waiting for the ferry, that gale storm that was building behind us, built in momentum and pushed the swell into the narrow gap of the strait in between the North and South Island to when we did get on the ferry. They chained the Maui motorhomes down to the deck of the parking and the lower hold of the boat with chain, big, huge chains and grappling hooks to lock it down so it wouldn't violently crash around because the seas were so bad. And I think I had fallen asleep in the motorhome and I woke up an hour or two later and we were like mid crossing because everything was being violently tossed around in the motorhome like shelves were falling up dishes and cups and stuff was thrashing around and i went up into the top holiday deck of the boat and like everybody was up against the wall puking the chairs and and tables were doing this feature that was sliding back and forth I think the outer observation deck was 30 feet up on the ferry and chairs were being washed off because the wave action was so violent. But it was, uh, that was a wild, like my first time on a boat or a vessel where I thought this is, you know, this could be it, you know, we could die. But amazing trip, the riding that was happening, the group that we were with, the riders that were there and the way that we were all familiar and comfortable with us being from the Northwest, there was... We existed in a motorhome for a month together and flourished, you know. Just Pete, hanging out with Pete was awesome. You know, him, you know, not riding with Mervyn, but being a, being a part of, like, the Northwest community, it really didn't matter who we were riding for. We were all part of the same, cut from the same cloth, you know. So it was really cool to have all the different riding styles, Pete and his technical wizardry, you know, Dave and Todd with had a really heavy skate influence, but could, you know, trick wizardry. And then just me, where I fit into that dynamic, it was a really good combination of riders that just pushed the level of what we were doing, the way we were doing it, um, that showed in the in the outcome in the movie. That, that New Zealand section, I look back at it, and I remember the times, but I remember the writing, and then to see the writing that came out of it was something that I like I'm I'm proud of that opportunity you know it was it was a good trip the movie was awesome too yeah riveting story too uh going back thinking about your writing at that point in time you know you you're definitely pushing the progression of snowboarding and I'm just kind of curious to get inside your head and think did you have a specific mentality 
in the way you wanted to approach snowboarding or your snowboarding to look? I think it goes back to skateboarding for me. You know, I, I, I vert skateboarding was something that I was really into in the eighties and as a youth and, um, the guys that I looked up to was like Christian Asoy and Chris Miller were two huge vert skater influences. And I remember, uh, really digging Chris Miller's style what he would do and the way he would do it, he had a certain feel to it. And like he would do these alley-oop lean 360s on a vert ramp that was just so fluid and smooth. And and then Christian had his, you know, bionic ability to blast as big as possible, 10 feet on a vert ramp, kick out huge methods. You know, it just that I wanted to do it as big as I could, as fast as I could but still have some level of control while doing it, you know? And I think that was my early foundation of that riding style was just trying to take the limitations from a skateboard that you were kind of like, you know, there's a certain cap about how fast and how big and how, you know, far you could go on a skateboard, but on a snowboard, you could blow that up. You know, you could hit jumps that were 40, 50 feet, you know, it's more like, going back to supercross influence you know on a dirt bike you hold the throttle wide open and you could blast i felt like that on the snowboard where you could like just hold it wide open at a jump and try to go as big like look at it look at a jump and see the train and go okay try to read the features and then see maybe a bump that was just out of reach and try to reach it you know and, and try to make that transition a reality where other people might have looked at a little bit more of like a manageable setting to be able to approach that feature, you know. And, and again, I just went back to like riding with that crew that I was riding with. We were just, we didn't have any rev limiter, you know. There was no governor on our setups. It was just wide open as fast as possible. And I think like, you know, getting a chance to develop that wild style where there might have been more crashes than landings, but then after doing it for a certain amount of time, you start landing stuff, you know, and you start figuring it out. And you see, you find out where your limitations are and you know how far to push it past that point with still being, you know, manageable. Who was your favorite person to film with back in those days? Rider-wise. Oh, uh, as far as like, you know, hanging out when the, you know, when it was like roadkill and RPM, um, a lot of the Tahoe guys were huge, like Noah Selasnik, man incredible person incredible like skateboarder um chris roach another huge influence and someone that when we had sessions together in the same kind of venue it was always fun to ride with him you know him and his brother monty and then aaron vincent was another Tahoe cat and then cardiel was another cat that i can't say enough about about those early snowboard days him coming from skateboarding and just like his approach to skateboarding was so out there and awesome that he translated that to a snowboard and did it in a way that like he didn't really have the like, technical skill of board control but his approach to the terrain and the way that he would dissect and go for lines and do stuff like it was like i had never seen anything like that before um those guys were huge um growing up in the northwest with dave and todd you know riding for libtech and gnu we spent a lot of time together those guys were, you know, when we started filming together with Mac Doug, we spent a lot of time together. So we were always, you know, in that same environment. Um, had a great time when we did it together. Um, 
you know, and I, I think that, that those, those two crews of Tahoe and, and Washington, you know, we had a lot of like interaction, you know, those guys either coming up to Baker or hood in the summer and getting a chance to session together. We always had the most fun together and what came out of it was always kind of the, you know, stuff that was making the cut. Now, incredible stuff uh i kind of want to change gears and and talk about the the 94 john foster cover of the road gap and the story behind that uh, that's a wild story because essentially we we went over to norway to not even snowboard it was an option as a secondary um idea but the original trip was based on an opening of a standing wave pool by this guy named Tom Lochtefield who developed the standing wave technology and I think he had put one on San Diego. But this was his second venture and it was in a, a theme park in Telemark, Norway. So he invited three snowboarders, uh, three pro skateboarders and three surf and I think it was like Tony Hawk, Chris Miller and um, and I'm, I'm not sure, maybe Colin, no, someone, another, maybe Omar, three skateboarders that was heavy. And then the surfers was Brad Gerlach and uh, Brock Little. And then it was like um, myself, Peter Lyon, Ray Alam, Hawken. And we go to this wave pool. I take a train, fly into Oslo, take a train to Telemark. Incredible. I remember the train ride more than anything because they got a chance to traverse Norway from Oslo, which is on the east side to the west side. And you go over the mountains and you only could get into those beautiful areas unless you're on a train. So it was a way to like experience this new world of Norway on a train ride. And that was like huge. But we get to get to Telemark. They put us up in this cool lodge scandinavian lodge that looked like a troll house and we wake up in the morning and everyone's stoked to go check out this wave pool and they put us on the bus and they haul us to this theme park and we get off the bus and the pool is laid out in front of us the waves there but nothing's none of the water is working like no the water's not flowing the waves not working because they had yet to fire it up so we all get on the sidelines of the pool and we're all kind of looking at it, just kind of like wondering what's going to happen. And then this guy, Tom, like signals the guy, like, fire up the pumps. And the pumps fire up and this stream of water comes out from the pumps and banks the corner and goes right in front of us right before the sanding wave. And it catches the pool lining and just rips the pool lining to shreds right in front of us and just the whole thing shits the bed. <laughs> <laughs> no fucking wave no all, the way to <laughs> all these people all this infrastructure all this expense to get everyone together and this is like world-class crew of like different disciplines snow skate surf and just the thing just crops out right in front of us so then we we're just like okay what the fuck are we gonna do now you know we got all these people and then i think it was hawk hawking that said there's a spot called strin it's about six hour drive you know, if you you guys all brought your gear, let's go shift gears and we'll go snowboard. So I think John Foster was on that trip to document it. And I think Aaron Chang, the surf photographer, might have been there too. I mean, legends. And the whole crew was just built on these, like, powerhouses of, of, of people that were there for it. So at the time, I think Terrier had, a like, a Mitsubishi 3000 Bjorn Borg edition car. The thing was nuts. 
went probably like a hundred, you know, 200 kilometers per hour, no problem. But he's kind of, you know, he didn't really, I don't know if he didn't like to drive or he just was like throwing me a bone and saying that, you know, if you want to drive, you can drive up there and I'll watch out for the speed cameras. So I get behind the wheel of this Mitsubishi and I just like, we pedal down and we make this six hour drive in probably four and a half hours, just flying. We get all the way to the base of the mountain and Terry's like, okay, we're in the mountains. I'm going to drive now. And the mountains, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a, a summertime glacier. So in the winter, it's like so snowed in, there's huge snow banks. So we switch drivers, Hawkins dro drops into the driver's seat and he starts taking off the second corner. He loses control and slides into a snowbank and just crumples his front right quarter, just like blows up second corner. So we're like, okay, you know, you're the mountain driver. It's cool. Um, we make it up to the mountain. We go up there and we ride. We park next to these snowbanks, and then uh, you know it's kind of back from the cliffs in this narrow slot of this road that was like you know twenty twenty five foot snowbanks. We go up and ride the ski area at Strand, and, and there's nothing up there. We can't find a jump. We can't even find a mogul to ollie off of, you know. And it's kind of fogged in, and the weather's shitty, and the snow is kind of marginal, and and there's all these people that want to ride and do shit, but there was nothing to do on the actual ski area. So we were like, okay, scrap it. Let's go back down. So we went up to the top, and we took, like, this back route down that would put us right on top of where we parked the car. About three-quarters of the way down we stop and we look and it's like this perfect run-in to where the when the snow plow had cut the road it threw snow up and created these transitions so when we we're looking down at this perfect run-in to this perfect transition to this road gap we were like okay now we got something to work with you know but it was like it's a big gap and i think like uh, hawken and i might have rochambeaued to see who went first they were like, okay, who's going to do it? So I win. I get to go. And I'm thinking, like, okay, what? I got all this heavy crew behind me. I'm not just going to do a straighter. Like, what am I going to do to kind of, like, set the bar of, you know, like, where we were at? So I dropped in switch and did a cab five over it. And my mentality was that if I went switch and did a cab five, the whole thing would be to my blind side pretty much three-quarters of the way through the jump. You know, so if I came off switch, my back would be to the death gap feature. And then when I opened up, I'd be on the landing and everything would be cool. Did a cab five, stuck it, showed everyone that it was possible and that the potential of this session was going to be awesome. And then from that on, it was on. It was like, you know, hawking like big, you know, method to fakey and like just Peter doing Peter off of it and Rado like front flip. You know, it was nuts. And I think the that session that happened was just, like, wasn't meant to be on all different levels. Like, we were not supposed to go up and hit anything on a snowboard, and then we were up in the mountains snowboarding with no jumps and then find this jump. John Foster was there. I think he went to his car, went down on the road to get, like, the gap, and I think I did that. The front three was, like, the second or third trick that I got off of it. I mean, everyone stomped their shit, too. That's what I remember about that session. It's like you get sessions, especially on a road gap, where you might overshoot it. You might have to calibrate a little bit to get it figured out. But everybody in that session had a bag of tricks, and everybody absolutely stomped every attempt 
off of that jump it was like that's what i really remember about that session is like everyone was so on point and so frothing to get a chance to ride anything when they found it we made the most of it you know and to have that be captured by a, a photographer of the caliber that john foster is was like hugely special and uh, what an opportunity and that image became one of my one and only covers i've ever had on a, on a snowboard magazine with that 94 issue of transworld I got you a cover in Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Holy bully. Yeah. Well, Dude, well, that, I love how you said Peter doing yeah, Peter. Peter's doing Peter. <laughs> Peter was doing Peter. Peter is so awesome, man. He, but he's got such a unique approach to things mm -hmm. that that's what made him like him. You can't, you know, you can't replicate mm -hmm. that. You know, it's hard to go out and try to replicate anything that he does because the way he does it is such a creative, unique a approach that just like holy shit you know like it, and it put him on a different level a whole different category like he had his own genre and and uh to be a part of that with him is like man what a huge opportunity well and that photo is so it's timeless so timeless so iconic it's incredible well i'll tell you what buds we've been going for a while we have and i think it might be time for uh name that video part Ooh, Ooh this is gonna be tough <laughs> Name That Video Part is presented by Mammoth Mountain. Uh, Mammoth, one of the best mountains in North America. You might catch buds in the mini pipe going switch McTwist. Going you think, huge. Are we going to dust off the switch Mickey this We're year? We're going to dust it. Okay. Start We're, with an airbag maybe and uh, work my way into the well, snow. Well, they, they have those there in the spring. Let's uh, go. Might just be for U.S. team, but they got everything all the I'm way from, from beginner park setup all the way to the biggest jumps you'll find in North America. And in addition to that, if it snows... Great terrain. Great terrain. A lot of just good groomers. If you want to, if you're just a carved dogger, you want to whack some turns. Huge mountain. Huge mountain. Hence the name Mammoth. It's a mammoth of a mountain right there. So if you're interested in a fun snowboard vacation, check out Mammoth Mountain. They support the show. They kick ass. Thank you, Mammoth. All right, Jamie, how are you feeling? Confidence level zero through ten. Uh, probably like a two, man. I'll tell you what. There's only a couple of videos out there that I've really connected with the video soundtrack. One was that, you know, the Roadkill intro with Dave Cioni editing that was that no effects song. You know, I think, um, you know, there might be a couple from the early Dogger days with, with obscure bands like Aversion, you know, the bands that he pulled out of San Francisco, just however he did it. Um, there was a Melvin's tune that Sione used, I think, in uh, maybe RPM or something that's called Honey Bucket. Mm -hmm. That when I hear that, I know exactly like it came from that because it was just, it had a dog like growl at the beginning of it. You know, it was like, rawr, 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 and then it kicked into a Melvin's tune and there's something about that that is just connected. Um, and then, of course, like the garden, you know, and, and, and that soundtrack was so like, you know, Deep Purple, Chains Addiction, Primus, Neil Young, like a man, you can't, you can't, you don't get that these yeah. days. And on, so I, I don't, you know, let, let's give it a shot. Yeah. Well, I, it's I, none of those videos. So, yeah. yeah. So if you don't, it, so I, that's why I say it too, because if it's not any of those videos, I have a slim to none chance of figuring out where you guys are coming from. Yeah, I'm does. also going to gonna cue up the fact that uh, Pensiero is the one who told me to use this song. Right. So, you know, um, I'm going to, he can dive on the store, sword if, if you don't get this one. Okay, here we go. 
Yeah. Yeah, that was a movie that it was an FG Productions called The Brotherhood. Yeah. So he got, he got it. it. That was yeah. actually Jamie's part. That was you thought, you yeah. thought he might not get his own part. You know, that was a band called Portrait of Poverty, and uh, and they uh, they were a local Seattle band that grew up um, skateboarding and snowboarding with us, and you know, scumbags in paradise. And at the, be- at the beginning of that movie, for the people that that don't know, you're like you you say this thing about talking about snowboarding, and then you kind of end with like. We're just scumbags in paradise. Yeah. And then the part starts. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so you yeah, got you yourself a bomb hole uh, prize pack. You got all kinds oh, of stuff in there. Thank you, guys. Uh, mugs. Awesome. You know what? I threw in a bunch of keychains for Pensiero because he said he wants some for the Snowcats. Uh, and they were too expensive on our site. So uh, <laughs> there's some there's some stuff for Pensiero. He just has a lot of Snowcats. Yeah, he's got like, he's got these guys swimming in Snowcats. He's got a fleet of Snowcats. Yeah, just, he just, I just talked to him the other day and he said he had two or three new cats coming up to the lodge. And, uh, he had flown in the boxes with a helicopter, and I was like, how are you going to get these snowcats up there? Because after like a certain time, the gate shuts and the road's closed, but I think he was able to get them on the other side of the gate, waiting for enough snow to get down low enough that he could actually get them up to the lodge. But a lot of, lo- lot of logistics. A lot Bald of logistics. Problems, right? So yeah. we, we got another uh, track for Name That Video Part. This is for the listeners. If you guys know what video part this is, uh, comment on Instagram. I'm a photo of Jamie. On the bombholes Instagram when it comes out, and that's where we pick our winner. And you, what do you get, buds? You're gonna get a prize pack. Not gonna be anything like the one we gave. It's gonna Jamie. be a very uh, budget prize yeah, pack. Probably some stickers. Yeah. Here we go. I can tell Jamie knows that's familiar to him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not gonna give any clues, but yeah. you know. You know what it is? Uh, You've I, definitely heard it, though. Yeah, yeah. It's a familiar track, but... Uh, we'll let the listeners give right. it a go. Well, thank you guys for playing the video part. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. All right, while we're talking about Baldface and Pensiero, um, he mentioned a story to me. Actually, maybe Ken brought this story up about how when you're up at Baldface, Lewis Hamilton was up there. And you guys linked up and set up a board, and I want you to tell your perspective of that story. Yeah, what a what a random uh, occurrence to have bringing a Formula One champion to a backcountry lodge, unbeknownst to everybody. I think it was a surprise. Um, Ken brought himself and a crew up there and, and it was Lewis and a bunch of his mates from the UK that he had grown up with uh, snowboarding. They had usually done an annual trip out to Colorado, I think, and, and Ken kind of convinced them to try Canada and to try Baldface. So Lewis shows up. Um, you know, I, I, I'm into Formula One and I'm into like, you know, motorsports, but I, I didn't really know exactly the scale and the scope of his dominance in that, you know, in Formula One and, and how accomplished he is as a driver, how much history he is, how talented he is. So when I met him, you know, I, I you know, connected like, oh, yeah, Lewis Hamilton, Formula One racer. That's cool. You know, I've met a couple of people in different, you know, respected professions or, or communities that, you know, we're, we're all... You know, we all just kind of developed from whatever our passion was and took it to wherever they'd taken it. But, I, you know, I didn't really, you know, 
connect him on the level that he had taken his profession to, but snowboarding is kind of a levels of playing field when you get into a backcountry lodge where everyone kind of checks their careers at the door and you're just all in it on the simple fact that you want to go and have the best days you can riding the best snow in the world. And that's what Baldface has to offer. But uh, Lewis didn't have a board and he needed help kind of setting up a board. So I think we took him down in the demo room and, and helped him get, pick out a board. And I think he picked like a GNU and um, just helping him set up his stance, you know, and, and get his width and his angles correct. And here I am trying to be technical in a setup for a guy that his technicality and the setup of his formula one race car is probably like on a level of just astrophysics proportions so it's kind of comedy that here where you know he's getting like and he's really like a tech oriented dude he's you know he wants to know as much as he can about what he's doing so it'll help him enrich his experience so we spent some time setting up his board and got him all dialed in and he was hyped and then we went out and rode the next day and um epic snow bald face is known for it but it really produced this trip and we had probably three feet of really beautiful consistency powder bluebird skies um you could send it off of everything up there all the terrain is line of sight there's really no major pitfalls the guides do an excellent job putting on terrain that you could manage but then maximize with your riding ability um tons of kickers drops hips trees it's got it all but that day with lewis and ken there was a stump jump in front of me and it was a perfect like vert fly ramp kicker into a beautiful open field of powder Uh, dropped in and just did this like big wildcat backflip like i don't know if it was laid out or if i grabbed or what but lewis saw that and was just like holy shit i i need to i need to figure that out i need to learn backflips so the rest of the afternoon, Lewis, every jump that he found, he would attempt a backflip, <laughs> mostly unsuccessful. And then I started thinking, like, shit, I could have just inspired this person to be physically harmed by these attempts, and hit where he needs to go after this is way bigger than where I'm ever going to be in snowboarding, you know, so I, I can't be responsible for this. But his, like... um his ability to lock onto something and not put it down until he had mastered it was showcased in that whole experience. He started where he was just like, you know, just gainers onto his head 10, 15 times doing that. And then he, you know, we kind of pointed him out like, hey, you need a jump that's got pop. You need to catch more air. You need to go a little bit farther to have the timing. So he did it all day in the cat and unsuccessfully. And then he got back to the lodge. And while everyone kind of went in for the après drinks and, and lunch or snacks or early pre-dinner dinner routine, he stayed outside the lodge and he built a kicker off the front slab of the cat track into an open field of powder. And I looked out the window and I, I noticed like, holy shit, he's still getting after it. So I, I got a, like a, you know, Caesar and I walked outside and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at his jump and looking at his landings and he had a couple bomb holes down there that were unsuccessful attempts. And then the light, I mean, the, the set the scene, the light's setting, it's like these golden rays of sun. It's beautiful, uh, backlit to what he was doing. 
and here comes Lewis. He drops in way too much speed and, and just wild and kind of uncontrolled. But then he hits the jump and he locks into this backflip that I see it right in front of my eyes. I'm just, he goes upside down and the way that the contrail of snow coming off his board was backlit with this beautiful golden rays of sunset. And I'm just like looking at it going, oh, he's gonna, he's not gonna make it. He's not gonna make it. And then at the last minute, he just pulls his knees underneath him and stomps his very first backflip. And I know that guy's had a lot of accomplishments in his life, but I could tell by his stoke and how he was just, he had connected with something that we've all, if we've ever done snowboarding at one point in time, you have those milestones that you can connect with that just makes you build that foundation of just the love and passion for what you do. And I think he got a taste of that with that whole experience. And it was really cool to see and be a part of, but yeah, Lewis Hamilton, man, he's a, he's a cool cat. Wow, what a wild story. Holy shit. Well, talking uh, talking about Baldface, uh, you know, we got to get a guest question, obviously, from uh, Jeff Pensiero. And I will preface this with guest question with the fact that we have video footage to go along with this. So here we go. Hey, Jamie, JP here. I uh, got a question for you. A lot of people know you as, you know, iconic snowboarder, artist, musician, etc. But a lot of people don't know that you're a fitness devotee and you've developed your own amazing morning routine at Hobo Camp. I was wondering if you could share with the listeners uh, what your morning routine is like in your truest state of freedom at Hobo Camp. Love you, bud. Hope you're having a great one on the old bomb hole. Oh, love that man. Um, hobo camp. Little backstory to this: uh, we were up in Baldface in March when the whole world shut down with COVID. Um, we had a decision where we had a couple days before the border shut down. We were like, okay, what are we gonna do? Should we scramble, pack it up, and scramble back to the states and kind of, you know, I have a house and property down there, or do we just stay up in Canada and ride it out? So my girl and I made the decision that we were just going to stay put, see what happened. Um, for the first two weeks of shutdown, um, we were staying at Jeff's place where he has kind of a mother-in-law suite above his garage, a little apartment. And for the first two weeks, he gathered up his family. I mean, all the guests from the lodge had, had scrambled, and the lodge was open but outfitted with enough supplies to last, you know, 40 guests for the next two weeks. So it was like a doomsday prepper's dream come true to go and hole up someplace where he had everything at his disposal. So he grabs his family and goes up to the lodge. We're in the mother-in-law suite for the first two weeks. And the first two weeks, like, the world was crazy. No one knew what was happening. No one knew what was really going on. I would go into the house and I would turn on CNN and CBC and, and watch all the news feed and, and see all, like, the death tolls and statistics and all this like really negative media feed that I just was like, it really bummed me out. Like I was, I got down and I was just like, you know, almost in tears a couple mornings of going through that routine of just checking in with the rest of the world. And then uh, after the first two weeks, Jeff was coming back to the house and he goes, hey, I, I don't know what, what's happening. I don't know the dynamic of all this, but if you guys could find another place to go, I'm gonna bring my family back and we're gonna lock in and shut down in our house. Like we don't really want any outside, so. 
if you guys could find another place, that'd be awesome. You know, um, we were just like, okay. So we kind of like ask around, like who's got a place to stay. And um, this woman is Pam Jeffers. She's the pastry chef up at the lodge. She reached out and said, hey, you guys, I have another rental house in Nelson. Um, it's open right now. It's unfurnished. But if you guys would want to stay there and kind of ride it out, it's open for you guys. So we were kind of like, okay, this is a place we can transition to after Jeff's. Um, right at the last minute, her boyfriend flies back from Indonesia and needs a place to quarantine. So that opportunity to go to that house was then uh, off the table. But she goes, as a consolation, um, I have a house across the highway. I have a little property, a little, little wooded area. If you guys want to set up camp and camp out there, you're more than welcome. So then I was like, okay, well, let's go check that out. So we went down, we set up our camp, um, tent on the beach, little tarp show, full like hobo encampment. And we ended up staying down there for like 140 days. We camped out there for six months. So once we got down there, of course we had the amenities of the house with the bathroom and like we were, you know, Pam was open. She wasn't really scared about everything. Like, she, you know, she's like, you're part of our family now. She brought us in and made us feel warm and welcome. But for the most part, we stayed in our little camp down on the water. And it was on Kootenai Lake. Um, had a fishing pole, had a canoe, and no TV and no radio. So you disconnected from that negative media feed that was happening everywhere that was scaring the shit out of everybody. And what we were able to do is reconnect with nature. There was no road noise. The eagles and ospreys were like fighting over fishing rights on the lake right in front of us. We'd, I'd go out and fish, not catch a damn thing, and then I'd beach the canoe, and then right behind me an eagle would drop down and swoop a big old rainbow out right behind me, and I'd just be like, fuck, I'm doing it wrong. But we were able to exist in this like little hobo encampment to where we got into our routine, you know, and it was like... We'd have to make a campfire to make coffee every morning. You know, we'd cook our dinner sometimes on the campfire. Um, Kootenai Lake is kind of uh, regulated by the spring runoff, and it's got a dam on it. So in the springtime, when the snow melts, it brings up the lake level. So at first, we had all this beautiful real estate, sand, and then as the water level came up, it started encroaching on our living space. So where we had our tent, we couldn't have that anymore. And it was kind of wooded, really didn't have much room for it. And so Jeff offered us a heli net that they used to bring all the trash bags from the lodge. But it was this really cool um, nylon webbed net that I then elevated and tied down with tie down straps to all the trees and made this like trapeze net and then put the tent on top of this net. So when the lake level came up, we had, you know, elevation, levitation in our housing sector. <laughs> and we were able to exist down there for like, you know, all the way through the spring. We got there April 1st, it was snowing on the beach and we were still catching weather to like, you know, our we were gauging time upon the full moon cycles. You know, we really didn't keep track of the days. We were just like, oh, it's a full moon again. We've been here for a month, you know, like it was really, you know, the train would go by, and then I, I could tell the time. It was either 4.30 or 7.30, depending on what day of the week it was. So we just started getting in tune and in touch with, like, more grounded aspect of living and being totally present to where we weren't, you know, thinking about 
going anywhere. We didn't think about where we came from. Everything was right in front of us. And so we'd get into those like routines. And one of the morning routines was just like turning on Black Sabbath and starting your day with a cup of coffee and Black Sabbath. And I think there was some microdose mushrooms involved in that whole process too. I think, you know, we got turned on to someone who distributed this little micro magic and it was like a hundred milligram Cubensi dose that you could take one capsule and it really didn't, you really didn't feel it, but you just, your whole senses were elevated. You were happy, more vivid, but this energy came out of that, that, you know, I, but I saw, I, and Dini and I, like, it was a really good test for a relationship, too, because if you're locked down with somebody in a tent for a week, sometimes it gets hard. But you do that for six months, and you have to really learn how to exist with one another. And through that experience, I think we flourished in our relationship because we were able to, you know, exist in that environment and really have fun with it and part of having fun with it was certain dance routines you know and we just have these funky quirky dance moves that just usually had black sabbath as the as the soundtrack you know and and we would just like get down with each other and sometimes it was fully clothed sometimes it was you know fairly naked and mm -hmm. but there we were in a spot where you could do that because there was nobody around like the world had everybody crawled back into their holes and stayed there so it was like it was we were just it was wide open and really a lot of fun and i look back at it now and i think what an awesome opportunity to take something that was so negative and so such a downer for so many people and so depressing and so like you know everybody closed off and it was our open opportunity just to open up you know and be a part of something that was fun and and um and just our own, you know. I took all the sticks that I could find and I made this kind of like nest screen and built the fireplace area and made all these benches and just had like a little kitchenette out of some driftwood and just made it fun and just made it our own, our own space, you know. Not having roof or four walls, we had a really good time. We called it camp quarantine, you know inspiring cool. inspiring there there was a time when there a bear came into camp and i was Oof. jeff lived like six miles down the road with his house and i i had gotten a dirt bike and i was on my dirt bike and i was down at jeff's house and we got a call and i said hey there's a bear in the camp and i'm like oh shit so i jump on my bike jeff jumps in his truck and we haul ass back to where we were camped and by the time we got out there the bear's gone you know but um he did come back and like wreck havoc on the chicken coop and so i'd like to there's a lot of things you're saying there and and uh i i'm deeply inspired by a lot of the things you're saying and talking to blum and, and a lot of people you're close with the the thing that they kept referring to was jamie is the most present person i've ever met in my life he's the most person that lives in the present moment more than anybody i've ever met and and that you know that experience is describes exactly what we're talking about with that. And, and I kind of wanted to hear you maybe elaborate on on living in the present moment. And I also heard you mention last night uh, the kind of following the power of suggestion as well. I mean, uh, a lot of times when I've had the opportunity to travel, you know, you, you put yourself out there on the road. And a lot of times you really didn't have a set itinerary or a set schedule. 
So you'd find yourself out there in places that were new, um, open to life experience, you know, and, and not having like an agenda was something that opened you up to the possibility of the power of suggestion is what I was talking about. And it's like you'd meet somebody and you'd be in a new place and you wouldn't know what was on the peripheral, or what was cool about that place until you connected with the local and the local would tell you, like, hey, have you ever been here? No, I've never been there. You should check it out. And then it just gave you to a chance to see the best of what they thought was the best of where they existed. So a lot of times you got a chance to experience that environment on that wasn't in a tourist guide, wasn't on the map. You know, and it was like a, a sweet little honey hole of a swimming spot or a sick DIY skate park that, you know, it was done by a couple of locals underneath a bridge in south coast of France or just random opportunity to experience the world on a, on a level where, you know, it, it kind of forces you to be present because you're not, you know, if you got an itinerary and, and you're like, okay, we got three days here and then we're going someplace else your mind is always like three days down the road wondering what's you know going to happen when you leave the place and you never really have a chance to fully experience because of that limitation of that schedule and that timeline. A lot of times when I'm traveling, I just put myself out there and if it feels right, and it goes back to Scott Blum, you know, when we went on that bike trip, we did a bike trip, 10-day bike trip from Costa Mesa out to Virgin, Utah for the Red Bull Rampage. We get to 29 Palms. Um, we Google search the, if there's a skate park in town, he said, yeah, there's a skate park, but check out this review. And the review said 29 Palms skate park, a great place to sit. And we chuckled about that. Like, you know, that's the last description that I want to read about a skate park to inspire me to want to go check it out. You know, it doesn't sound like that awesome, but it was a great place to sit for somebody. So we took that as our mantra of the whole 10 day trip. Like, let's just go out in the world and find great places to sit. So we'd ride until we, we'd stop at a gas station and find a grassy knoll and it's like, hey, that looks like a great place to chill. We might spend 15 minutes, we might spend four hours, but we didn't have anything pulling us out of that moment, you know? We just, like, it was a comfortable spot. Why not sit in that comfortable spot for as long as it continued to feel comfortable? And then after that, you know, like usually, like, we'd sit out through the, the heat of the day, and then when it cooled down about six or seven, when the sun was setting and it was the best time to hit the road again, not only for you, but for your bike and for the least amount of traffic on the road, that's when we would make our most time up in wherever our next destination would be. And every night we would Google search and like our Google map or map quest, like a, something that looked like an ideal camp spot. We'd drop a pin and then just pull into it and it could be a killer spot. It could be the back 40 of some angry farmer's property that you had to hightail it out in the morning. But more often than not, we found these awesome camp spots along the way. We camped the whole time, didn't even think about a hotel. And it was warm. It was summer. It was like beautiful time to be out on the road, you know, nothing but miles of asphalt in front of you and not a care in the world. And, no, and, I, and we had 10 days to get to Utah, but we could have jammed it in one shot. But we just took our time and like if it felt comfortable we stopped if it didn't we moved on and when it was good to stop we stopped you know and really 
explored what was there and like you know had the time to park the bikes and go walk in like joshua tree and go like trip out on some rocks and just like sit and watch the sunset or so many times where i was just like i'm, I'm watching beautiful nature and our landscape go by and i'm and you know, it's just like i wish i had a camera in my brain to record all this but it, i do but I get to selfishly keep it for myself, you know? But it was so special that I was like, wow, I wish I could share this with everybody else because it's happening right now and we're in the middle of it, you know? And, and that's kind of just the mentality and philosophy of what I've tried to do when I hit the road, you know? Go out there with no agenda. Don't really have any preconceived notions. If you build up an expectation, then you're usually disappointed or let down because it doesn't meet that mark. So you go out into the world with just an open sense of, of just life taking on it as, it as it comes. And then just make the most of it while you're there. Be present, you know, and that's, that's kind of how I've developed that sense of travel. It's good to be able to share it with people like Scotty Blum. I take it you stay off the phone a lot then? Yeah, I mean, there's not, you know, in, in not having a girlfriend or someone that you had to check in with, mm. you know, I think Deanie and I maybe had been connecting and starting to develop a relationship, but she kind of knows when I'm on the road that I'm not the best, you know, at, at communicating and, and checking in. All of a sudden, it's usually when you hear from me, there's a problem, mm. you know, so if you don't hear from me, things are all good. So a lot of times if I keep that dynamic and just be able to... You know, you use your phone for your directions and, you know, the tool that you need to get down the road, but you don't, that's going to be your biggest thing that's going to pull you out of being present in that experience is like, I got to get to a spot that I could call my chick or I got to check in with work or I got to let them know that I made it here. And then you're just like, you're always thinking outside of the moment trying to, yeah, I think it's just, I, I think about of it being like complete selfishness, but there's a good selfishness that comes because you're you're allowing yourself to absorb the experience in a way that's really truly for you and not anybody else. We happen to have uh, Scott Blum in studio right now, the man himself. Uh, how we doing, Blum? Doing well. We were just talking some motorcycle stories. Uh, I was enamored with with uh, Jamie's storytelling. And, um, you know, I was wondering, you know, you told a couple stories last night in the garage about maybe waking up somewhere and didn't know where you were when you went in. And uh, maybe maybe <laughs> cue up a story about you guys uh, getting into a sticky situation with uh, riding motorcycles. I think we were at the, what was it called, the London Bridge? Yeah, Lake Havasu. Yeah. And just uh, the skate park there, Lake Havasu, is pretty sick. We got there late at night. It was had lights on it, so we skated for a couple hours. And then we didn't really know where we were going to camp. So we kind of looked down this little lane of dirt. looked like a kind of a isolated lighthouse zone. So we're like, oh, let's just go try to creedle in there and set up camp and see if we could make it through the night without getting run off or, or busted for camping where we weren't supposed to. Do you remember it started pouring rain? Yeah. So we line the motorcycles up next to each other. We kind of make like a tarp, strap tarps over the motorcycles, use like my tent to make this little shelter. 
we kind of just hunker down at night and we're like watching Netflix and just chilling, pass out. And then we wake up to like the sound of remote controlled jet boats. Like gas-powered, ga- <coughs> gas-powered remote control boats. Super loud. loud. Shit. Yeah, two-stroke motors. Yeah. Like, yeah. They have two-stroke motors? Yeah. But I remember popping our heads out, and it's like a Sunday at the park. Beautiful, yeah. sunny day. Families walking around everywhere. People are like, oh, great day at the lake. We're just like, oh, shit. Stinking. Yeah. Right know. on Front Street. We woke up on Front Street. <laughs> we thought it was a back little, like, sneaky little spot. We ended up being, like, right in the midst of just a Lake Havasu summer scene. Remote control boats, people walking the beach, boats, like, right in front of us, probably, like, 10, 15 feet from where our camp setup was. It was, like... When you pulled in, there was nobody around. Oh, like, oh this is a remote location. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. Is No oh, one's going to yeah. see us here. We thought we, we would, could pull We'd off. find the campsites on, like, Google Earth at night. We'd ride until, like, through sunsets, the best time. It's beautiful. Gets dark, and we'd like try to find a place to sleep for the night. And we're like, "Oh, this looks good! Like right on the water, nice little like grassy area by the lighthouse." Kind of backfired a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there. But out of after out of like a two week road trip, you know, that was like one or two times where it really we were like, "What the fuck were we doing here?" You know, this was a bad call. But the other, you know. 80% of the time we found these magical little locations where the spot after that we found this like corral horse corral thing that was um, I think it was I-40 that goes from like Williams to Gallup, New Mexico and then from Gallup into the Grand Canyon and uh yeah, I think it was, was it New Mexico? No. Arizona, Arizona, maybe? Yeah, Gallup, Arizona, out, or somewhere around there. So we we ended up going, and we're like, oh, this is cool, but there was old highway, um, shit, Route 66, and it's like this offshoot spur, and we're like, we could hit I-40 and jam. Let's check out this, like, side bus route. And we looked to Google Earth, found this spot, go up, drive up this dirt road into like this wooded horse corral that was in the middle of nowhere. It was dark, it was starting to sprinkle. We set up our tarps, he put it, I had a hammock, he had a tent, set up our shop, built a little fire. And then this like thunder and lightning storm came in and we watched this lightning show happen all around us, coming off of Lake Havasu, these big thunder and st- like lightning clouds. And then it was just like this amazing, amazing lightning show. And then woke up in the morning, packed up, and Next like hit spot. hit this Route 66 route. That was like one of those highlights of the trip where you're just like, wow, so stoked we took this side bust. Really provided like w- one of the best visuals of the whole trip. That usually we would have just like you know we need to, we need to make time. Let's just let's just go point A to point B. But we didn't have nothing. We had nothing but time. So we we're like, let's check it out, and it like paid off big time route 66 is like a famous travel route right yeah and then uh what about the story about him going macgyver on him like when you you, you lost MacGyver? you you lost the bolt and he uh he oh i think that was where sit tour started maybe we're in 29 palms <clears throat> we're always looking for skate parks it's kind of the best place to relax take a break roll around it's where you want to hang so one skate park review says this is a really good place to sit 
was like a terrible skate park, but a great place to sit. So that struck a chord right away, and we're like, sick, let's chill. Yeah. Uh, did lose a bolt on the motorcycle, and I think you, there's something, it's a crucial part, but you took a bolt off of like a barbed wire fence. We, he MacGyvered it. Off of and there was something about the like the the universe provides or something. What was oh, the yeah? Qu- there's parts everywhere. There's, yeah. yeah, parts everywhere. Yeah, I mean, a, a trip is just a trip until something goes south, and then the real adventure begins. You know, so a breakdown <laughs> or a mechanical failure on the road is almost like an opportunity to truly get an experience out of it. You know, like anybody can go from point A to point B, smooth, get there, you're done. But when something shits the bed and puts you on the side of the road, then it's just like, all right. Now what the fun now the fun begins, you know, like how, <laughs> how how quick can we remedy this and get back on the road? So it's almost like you hit the stop watching, okay, what's yeah, what's out there? This. What's out there? What do we got at hand that we could get the hardware stores not down the road, you know, we didn't have any other access to any tools or or hardware, so we're just like, okay, what will the universe provide to remedy this situation and get back out on the road? And, and most people would be throwing up their arms, panicking, not knowing what to do. And you look at it as this is actually you know, the good time. <laughs> we we never called AAA. Let's no. just put it that way. We didn't love that. I remember no, we just no. paced around for a little while, and we're like, <laughs> "What can we do?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you just go kind of like just check out your environment and your peripheral, and see where you could possibly cannibalize or scavenge any kind of parts available, available parts resource. You know, and another just, really good one. Is when remember when we camped at like the Black Widow capital of oh yeah whatever outside of Page, Arizona Black Widow capital it's like Black Widow fucking city but sick spot to camp up in these like smooth rocks but again we're riding through sunset and we got this sick little spot picked out okay we'll stop here it gets dark and we just bury the bikes in the sand <laughs> yeah like, the, ori- the original spot we went to was kind of like. It's kind of a bus, no trespassing signs. It was more like a tourist destination that this native reservation, Navajo, had set up to like it was a really deep death box canyon. And I thought, oh, cool, we'll, we'll get down in this canyon or we'll be on top of this canyon. It would be a sick spot to camp. But when we pulled up there at night, it just it was gated and kind of like we could have hiked in. But then in the morning, we could again been on Front Street where the, you know, been run off by the reservation cats going, hey, you know, it costs 20 bucks to come and and visit it during the day, but you guys have snuck in and camped, it would have been a bust. So I noticed like this little rock outcropping a couple miles back down the road. So I like, let's go check out this other spot. We ride down the road. It's kind of like a rocky bump, hard pack. I ride up on my bike and I get down into the other side. I'm kind of committed. And I where I go down, I hit sand and I just auger up up, up to the axles. Took Totally stuck where I could get off the bike, not put the kickstand down, and the bike would stay upright. So we were just like, okay, I guess this is where we're going to be camping for the night. <laughs> I guess we're parking it. Yeah. And then we found this cool mushroom rock, like this really cool outcropping of like this sandstone rock and had kind of a flat plateau on top of it. Had some like barriers with rock that we could build a fire up against it. We got a bunch of sage and built this fire and just had this like... It was a full moon and like the clouds with the full moon. It was just incredible. The sage smoke was like this beautiful scent. We, I found a stretch for the hammock. He had his, like, you know, I don't know if you're in the tent or just supped outside. 
But then we woke up in the morning and looked around where we had camped, and it was seriously like a a black widow habitat. (laughs) (laughs) Huge black widows. Huge. We go sneaking in these little, like, cracked crevasses back down towards the bike, and we're just finding huge black widows. Massive, massive black widows. Like, when we were just, like, you know, shouldering up to them in the middle of the night. (laughs) Cuddling with them all night. (laughs) But then the real, you know, the, the story of was the departure from that because we had still augered in the bike and we still needed to get the bike out of there. And I, I was on kind of a full-size Dyna. Scotty's on a Sportster. It's a little bit lighter, and he could have buoyancy or flotation on top of the sand. So he was able to, like, you know, push and get out of it. But I was, like, up to my axles, so I was like, fuck, how am I going to get out of here? It's probably, like, 50, 60 yards to the road. So I start gathering rocks to make my own rock cobblestone path and built pretty much kind of this makeshift sidewalk. I that, swear it took like an hour yeah, to no, make it, this road. It wasn't easy, you know. It was like <laughs> manual labor to build this like cobblestone brickwork to then lift the bike out of it onto like a small flat flagstone pad. And I had like one shot to like drop the clutch and hold it wide open and pretty much leapfrog from rock to rock to stay out of the sand because if I would have went off, I it would have been done. And uh, poor Scott, uh, you know, he gives me the push and then I just throttle it and I know I probably just showered him with just <laughs> rocks, you know, pelted with rocks and sand, but we, we made it out and it was like... It was already the best day ever because we just like conquered. Yeah, made a little like, cobblestone. Yeah, you, we you, did it. You start you start the day off on the best foot because you know it was like you were in a predicament that you successfully navigated, and you're able to pull it off, and then you're back on the road, and then it was like gravy. You know, and I think we hit Page up into Southern Utah. That was an awesome trip. We were going to the Virgin Red Bull Rampage in Virgin Utah, but the route that we took. We went up uh, into Kanab, southern Utah, all the way to Bryce Canyon. But before that, remember when we slept in the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> stopped in the Grand Canyon, catch a sunset. We raced to get there before sunset, and the, the road, the last road to the Grand Canyon was like amazing sunset. And then we get there right as the sun dips, and we lose the light. We caught like like 15 minutes of it awesome but then it was like october yeah. pretty late in early fall you know pretty late into fall so at nights in the grand canyon it was getting cold like down into like freezing area so we were like okay where do we where do we camp you know we didn't really want to camp in like the designated campground because that was just wasn't what we were doing so we ride along the rim until we find this campground that had a gate on it. And on a bike, like, gates really don't. They're just a suggestion. But we found this path around the gate, and it was nighttime, and we didn't really see what we were getting into. But we just rode through the parking lot and then off into the woods until we couldn't really ride any longer. And then it was the same thing where you just, like, you ride until you get stuck or you have to stop. And then it was like, okay, this is this is camp, you know. <laughs> I guess we're parking it. Yeah. yeah, but it was it would ended up being a really cold night, but Snowed. it was a, a a successful extraction in the morning. Packed it up, got out of there, rode the south rim of the Grand Canyon, epic, and then headed north. 
up to Bryce Canyon where we met Seth Hewitt. He rode his bike down from Salt Lake. And um, same thing in Bryce Canyon. We, we were riding up into the canyon and we see this sign that said no off-road use and no camping. So we found the first trail that went off-road and found a camp spot. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, again, it was like really sick, awesome camp spot. How um, long was this trip in total? Uh, it was a little over 10 days, I think. I think we were on the road for over two weeks where we had started. Prior. Yeah. We, we had, started at like, I came up from Mammoth and I think you came down from Seattle or Reno. Reno. And we met at Sonora Pass. And we went uh, over Sonora Pass to like Santa Cruz, down to SoCal. Yeah. Oh, in the summer, nope, you could you go had, right over Sonora. You had no speedo, too, right? No speedometer and How no is that? like gas gauge and yeah. a really small tank. I maybe can get a hundred miles on the tank, but depends on how we're riding. And that made it really fun. Surprisingly, we never ran out of gas and had to like push it or shuttle. We always made it. Yeah. But it was fun. It would like sputter out, and I'd be like, "Oh shit, we got to find a gas station." Yeah, that that first section of Sonora Pass, we get up to the top of the pass, and then I was like, "Hey, let's cut off the engines. We'll soapbox derby." try to coast down the backside of the pass and see how far and how fast we could do it just coasting. And we did that. And it was super fun. So then every downhill was like, we just cut the engines and coast. And it was like a hill bomb. So we did that progressively all the way to Santa Cruz. You know, it was like Sonora Pass. And then I think it's Hecker Pass. It goes into Watsonville. I know we'd like go out of our way to find good hills just to kill the bike and put it in neutral it. and just be yeah silent all you hear is like your peg scraping and the sparks coming off your exhaust when you'd be laying it down through chicanes but we went from santa cruz down to pismo and then decided like we could jam down 101 or one or we could take a road less traveled that i've never been on. i don't think he might had but it was no. the backside of the santa barbara mountain range that eventually goes up over a pass and drops into ojai so we ride and, and we make good time and we get to the bottom of the pass. Right at the bottom of the pass, there was a sign that said Nest Gas 57 miles or something. And I look at my gas tank and I got like 20, my gauge reads like 25 miles left in my tank. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm screwed. I'm going to run out of gas. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no, no gas stations, no nothing out here. But we get up to the top of the pass and then we kill the engines and we hill bombed all the way into Ojai with gas to spare. Like, it actually saved our ass, like, doing that. Like, it was something that, without that technique and approach, I'd have been on the side of the road for sure. But because we were, like, soapbox derby <laughs> hill bombs, it, so like, saved fun. us. How's the kids' corner speed? Well, that's just it. You have to, like, you have to approach the corners with a technical <laughs> apex to carry your exit <laughs> speed out of there. Yeah. So it really starts making you think about the road and how you navigate that road to be able to, like, figure out how you can be as smooth as possible on it, you know, and it really helps you kind of, it, it translates into everything else in life, I guess. Well, I got a random uh, guest question, and uh, here we go. Hey, Jamie, it's JP here with some guest questionnaires who have a question for you. Uh, hi, Jamie. Um, remember the time that you were like, you told me a story about how you were on Hey, no, feet? it's when he told you a story of when he was riding his bike with ski boots on. No, no, he was riding his no, BMX Andrew, in the snow with ski boots on when he was No, but he back. had the ski boots on and then he had to bike home. No, no. No, you told, he no. told me. Okay, you two, okay, you two. I'll let you take it from there, Jamie. 
Uh, we love you. Can't wait to see you guys back in Nelson. Have fun on the bomb hole. So, uh, trying to get gather what the actual question was. <laughs> <laughs> Something about ski boots on a bike? B- BMX oh, ski oh, boots. Oh, oh, okay. All yeah. right. Check this out. I mean, I, I was in Auburn. I was a kid. I was in fourth. I was 10 years old. I was in fourth grade. We had just moved from Vashon Island to Auburn. It was when, you know, I was telling you the story about, you know, having K2 skis and the ski bus and not being able to afford anything. So I think I went to a thrift store and I bought ski boots, poles and skis for probably 10 bucks, 195s, size 10 ski boots. And I'm like a size six or something in fourth grade. And it snowed around our house and every all the high schoolers were going to go out to this hill and sled down this hill. I thought perfect opportunity to go skiing so i packed up the skis and i pedaled my bike in the snow down to the end of this cul-de-sac with ski boots on with skis (laughs) skis and poles over the shoulder pedaling a bmx bike with ski boots about you know a quarter mile down to the end of this cul-de-sac parked the bike in the snow hiked down there with these you know older neighborhood kids we get to the top of this power line hill i mean it only snowed probably like 15 16 inches but there's grass clumps sticking out. So I get, you know, rusted skis, rusted bindings, size way huge ski boots. And I think I'm going to ski and I drop in and I go probably 10, 20 yards. I hit a grass clump and one ski sticks in, the other ski goes around and I ended up injuring my knee. I broke my growth plate in my knee and I'm hurt. I can't really walk. I'm, about a half mile from where my bike was and another quarter mile to my house. And I'm with these high school kids that are telling me, you're 10, rub some dirt on it, you're fine, you know, walk it off. So I think I walked with ski boots with a broken knee all the way to my BMX bike and then got on my BMX bike and tried to pedal with ski boots, made it as far as like halfway found a neighbor went in the neighbor's house and was like i gotta call my mom i'm i'm hurt you know i I can't i can't make it and my mom before i left said hey we don't have a snow car so if you don't call me to come pick you up because i can't drive in the snow so i call my mom and i'm like mom you gotta come pick me up and she's like no way you know like no way i told you it's too treacherous you're gonna have to walk back and i'm like i'm hurt i got ski boots on she's like I don't care. I told you. So I ended up walking through like a farmer's neighbor's field in ski boots and like 16 inches of snow, quarter mile back to my house after pedaling my bike almost like a half mile, hiking from this power line hill. I go straight into my house and I go to sleep at like four o'clock in the afternoon. And I wake up at like 2.30 in the morning and my knee is the size of a freaking basketball. And it was fucked broken growth plate they were concerned that if the growth plate didn't heal correctly that i'd have to wear like a lift kit on my left foot (laughs) maybe that's why that it's a good powder like it kicks me back in a powder stance now (laughs) i could have a left leg that's shorter than my right but i was in a i was in a plaster cast from my hip to my toes for almost six months holy shit you were 10 yeah i was 10 years old your mom would come pick you up tough love right there i mean it was like she told you she had like a you know a really bad yeah the like, snow it was like is, a citation that was uh, front wheel drive with like summer tires on it she just didn't want to drive in it and 
uh, see where she was coming from, but she really felt bad. Yeah. Like when it, when she it, probably didn't think you're actually hurt when it came down to it, you know, like she probably felt like shit that she didn't come and pick me up. But I was, you know, 10 year, 10 years old. It's like, fuck. But, uh, going, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the, your guys road trip, you know, there's something really special about traveling with not a whole bunch of stuff. Like when you guys go out on your, on your motorcycle rides, there's not like, you know, you don't you don't have all these like bags with tons of shit, right? Uh, I kind of wanted to you guys to maybe elaborate on the beauty of kind of I guess minimalist travel and, and that you don't need much. I mean, I think that's where the hammock living came into play. It's like realizing that you could pack up a a hammock and have a tarp for some coverage if you got weather. And that hammock packed up so small that you could find a hammock stretch pretty much anywhere and make do, you know, and, and scaling down your whole existence that would fit in either side of your saddlebags. There's something to that to where you're not cluttered down and being drugged down by dragging a bunch of shit around. So, you know, you, a lot of times when you didn't pack enough, you know, you, you get creative. Um, I remember having Scott use his Volcom socks on the outside of his shoes when we were down in Flagstaff, I think, yeah. coming back from the Grand Canyon. We went to the Grand Canyon from Flagstaff on the way back. It was like... That was another year. That was yeah, this was a different trip, but it goes back to like, it was cold. And it was probably like, with the wind chill, close to in the teens, probably like 17, 18 degrees with the wind chill. And we stopped at a gas station and we were just like trying to put on all of our layers, but we didn't have enough. And it was like, we had to, we had still had 30 miles to go. And Scott's solution to that was take another pair of socks and put them over like sock up, shoe up, and then sock up over his shoes and rode the last 30 miles with a pair of socks on the outside of his shoes. How was that? Did it work warm? It worked super well. It broke the wind nice. I mean, we're in slip-ons pretty much the whole time, so. As many layers as you can get on those toes. That's, I've never heard anyone doing that, and I love it. But then we'd also use, like, our Gore-Tex snowboard outerwear, like the Vulcan bibs, and now his, like, oh, bibs. his yeah. one-piece that's coming out this year. But you got a one-piece like, in the cut. Yeah, yeah, we got a Vulcan uh, three-layer Gore powder suit coming out, and a lot of that stemmed back from being able to use it in alternative applications. Yes. You know, works great in the snow. But if you find yourself in a pinch, Gore-Tex packs up the tightest. You can have this tight little package that when you pull it out, it's a complete waterproof, windproof, you know, rain kit when it rains on a bike. Um, when you hit weather or cold, like it cuts all that wind. You don't get that wind chill. I mean, it's something that's really useful, but it goes back to the whole packing aesthetic of like you want, you know, like usually bikers have like leather and heavy shit. But when you get wet, leather just turns into a sponge and it's like super heavy and it's hard to pack up. But that's where we've translated all of our snowboard outerwear to the bike experience because it just packs super tidy and it provides the best protection from the elements when you're out on the road. Is that one piece available this year? Yep. Yep. All right. I'm going to get into a Patreon question. And this one is from Gregory Picard. Being such a larger part of snowboarding and its culture for so long, I'm curious, what has been the biggest change you've seen in snowboarding over the past decade? Hmm. 
Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed in snowboarding in the community is like parents getting their children into snowboarding with the mindset and goal that they're going to train them into being the next Sean White, you know, and having that that goal from the beginning inception as soon as they could walk and get on a snowboard that they were going to be able to develop this little human into a world-class olympic you know athlete and go going for the gold and and uh that's the biggest thing that i realized like wow it's it's really evolved to where we were fighting scrapping tooth and nail for any kind of toehold in on the mountain um fighting for the chance to have certain ski areas allow us to even do what we wanted to do um and now it just seems like it's so um just expected to be easy and a part of it when it wasn't really that easy and and that that smooth in the beginning i remember like getting in fist fights in the lift lines with skiers because there was this friction against you know like these ski school coaches and you know they ran over the back of our board on the way that we were just like you know like we're not kids you know like we you, you're punking us you know why are you punking us and then having this altercation with skiers and and friction and cat calls from the chairlifts and it's just that you know it was all it was never that easy and it was always kind of a struggle in the early days but now it's just like you know there's woodward parks and and snowboard academies and just like more of a developed infrastructure to allow kids to be more a broader range of the application which is awesome you know i i, I don't you know can't look at that as anything but positive and and it helps it just gives kids the opportunity to do something that i've always loved and if i could share that passion with other people and see it develop in any way then i'm stoked you know it really makes me happy to be a part of something that has that that legacy and and watch it evolve and and you know there's still i still see kids out there that still carry on in that same kind of vein of where it once was so it gives me hope for the future perfect great answer we got a guest question from uh, none other than pat moore here we go hey jamie it's pat uh we're flying with rainy right now it's insane um yeah we've put down some uh some hard miles together uh some amazing times um i just wanted to ask you you know how's life as a father these days uh, i know for me it's changed my perspective a lot i've softened up like some uh, warm butter. Um, but yeah, I hope you're doing well. Can't wait for the kids to hang out together. Love you lots. Awesome. What a gem of a human. Pat, uh, you know, fatherhood. Wow. Um, it's been an amazing journey and an amazing experience. And I know you're right in the thick of it. Um, you know, we just had a, a baby boy in March. Um, stoked to have someone as special and loving as Dini to co-parent this experience with me and she's blessed our family with a beautiful boy and you know it, it I've spent decades of a selfish selfish existence you know I live my life for myself 
100% wholeheartedly, almost at the expense of a lot of things that were sometimes really dear and important to me. You know, I've made a lot of consolation to continue that selfishness. When I decided to have a kid and start a family, like, that dissolved really quick, you know. And, and now you have this purpose and this new life in your life that you you just, you live for it. You know, and, and, it, and it demands 100% of your attention and responsibility. You can't just put them in bag check and say, hey, you know, like, I'm going to take a break for a little bit, you know, because it's full on. It's 24-hour schedule. And, and it, but it's also the opportunity to share your life experiences all those years through some new eyes, you know, and things that were fun to you as a kid. Now you get to turn him on to those same things that that he has a chance to digest and to make his own memories with. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that it definitely, you find love in you that you never thought was as deep until you have a child. And then you just, you, you look at him for the first time and you're just like, wow, like we created this. And how could you not have 100% fully involved love with a human that you've created like that and it's been it's been an amazing experience and and you know it's 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 not easy all the times but it's those challenges that I've always addressed in my life in different applications that's just like you know you're problem solving all the time and you're trying to figure out like okay why is he crying? You know, he's, it's usually pretty simple when he's a kid he's either got gas, he's got a full diaper or he's hungry. You know, and if you could figure out which one of those is happening and address it, he's. We've been really lucky, though. He's been an awesome, beautiful, happy boy. That you know, I I wake up every morning with him and Deanie cracking up in the bed, and they're always partying and having a good time. And and uh, we just flew for the first time with him, which we flew from Seattle down to Salt Lake for this, and he did awesome. You know, and. But it's those things that you always have in the back of your mind. Like of the years of traveling, you've always had that baby on board. Or it's just like just going berserk. And, you you know, you might have partied too hard the night before and you're a little hungover and you're on this like 10-hour flight from Japan. You're right in the middle of a family where the kids are fighting over the top of you and you have to go hide out in the back bathroom for a couple hours and catch <laughs> a little disease. So when you get in that situation yourself, you have I had those experiences in my mind. So I'm thinking, oh, is he gonna like blow up and be a handful? But he crashed out, and when he woke up, he was super happy, and we landed in Salt Lake, and it was an awesome experience. I hope that it all all of them go that easy. But the first one got behind us, and he did really well. But uh, you know, I, I as a father, you can only do so much, especially early on. Um, you're kind of just being a support. You pick a support role for the mom because the mom takes the majority of like the feeding and the night cycle where, you know, he's up every two, three hours sometimes throughout the night and he's hungry and I wake up because I hear him crying, but there's nothing really I can do about it. You know, mom has to pick up that night shift but multiple mornings at six o'clock in the morning, she'll come in and be dropping them off on my chest and saying, I can't take it anymore. Take them. But then it's my time to have that time with them to like, we'll go and take a walk and get a chance to feed them and spend some time connecting with them. And it's, it's, 
you know, as a dad, you kind of get, you know, you don't get that attention with them. So when you do, I try to make the most of it. But it's been awesome. I'm stoked for you, Pat, though. It's, it's quite a ride, and I'm stoked to be sharing this journey with you. I still have the same problems. It's either gas, I shat my pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who doesn't? Or I'm looking for food. Yeah, yeah, you're either hungry or you got a full diaper. Or he looked, he looked me he looked me dead in the eyes when I saw him. Dead in the eyes. Dead in the and eyes. And ripped a gigantic fart within like t- the first minute of meeting him. What a legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's my boy. Um, there's a Patreon question to take that a step further from uh, Daddy Snow Monkey. Out of all your years of travels, experiences, soul-inspiring moments you've spent in the mountains, what's the one thing you'd like to pass down or teach your child? Um, Hard-hitting question. Yeah. You know what? Really, like, do what you love and love what you do. Whatever that is. You know, if it's on, if, if he wants to snowboard, support that. And if he wants to ski or do whatever it is, you know, I, I want to be a positive like support you know his pit crew whatever it is you know and 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 really you know just provide opportunity like because i know like i want to be a a, i want to still do the things that i love and show him that i really enjoy what i do and hopefully he'll pick up on that feeling and emotion of what i'm into and want to do it with me that's all I could ask for, you know, and whatever it is, if it's traveling or snowboarding, skateboarding, riding bikes or dirt bikes or, you know, just whatever it is, like just continue to have fun doing what I'm doing. And then hopefully he'll be able to connect with it in a way that he wants to do it with me. You know, and I know that only lasts for so long until they turn into like little, little shits. And, and, <laughs> that you know, phase. Yeah, they're, they're driving cars and they got girlfriends and they're out of the house. So. I'm going to try to make as much of the chance that I have now to do that with him and try to be that support role. And, um, you know, and I can only hope that he wants to be there along the way. If he does snowboard, I just want to know what his method's going to look is, like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or is he goofy or regs? Yeah, or if he has a bad regs. method, was that like, yeah. what, is that going to be a problem or what? <laughs> you yeah. have to have a talk with him. <laughs> take him, take a knee with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there you can turn him on to your um, influences and let him pick his own, but let him know that the the way to develop your own is to open yourself up to others' experience. You know, and I think that that's something that was important for me, and that helped me develop my style and my approach. So that basic formula is like, hey, you know, whatever you're into, be into it. You know, but but you don't have to copy or, you know, emulate so much as like you could be influenced by it. And then once you take that influence, you can develop who you are and what you do for yourself. Great answer. Love it. Uh, We got another hard hitting question. This one is from Troy Eckert. Here we go. What's happening, Jamie? It's Troy. So you are one of the most present humans I know you would always give your full attention to whatever it was you, you were doing and just you do it full on. So my question for you is what is your idea of success? Much love brother. Well, Troy, I, you know, huge, um, 
huge person in my life and my career with one of the founding people with Volcom. Um, spent a lot of time with him in those early Volcom days. Cherish those moments. Um, it's great to hear his voice. I haven't heard that voice in a while. So right on, Troy, thank you for the question. Um, success uh, is defined the ability to wake up in the morning and be happy with where you're at and and what you become, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're sitting in the the nicest house with the biggest bank account, you know, because that's never really been the case. But just um, if you are in a position to continue to do what you love to do, and and I think that's a that's a successful position to be in in life, you know, and, and you know I don't have anybody telling me what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. You know, so that's a win for me that I'm still able to be a part of something that I've been a part of for over 35 years and, and still call my own shots, you know, and, and do it when I want to and not because I have to and not be forced into something that your heart's not into, like uh, it, to go into something wholeheartedly and, and and flourish with it and have that continue to have that opportunity. To me, that's a success in life. Damn. Facts. All right, it's time to get into the uh, pub beer crapshoot. Buds, I got the theme song again. Oh. <laughs> I lost the theme song. Welcome apparently. to the pub beer crapshoot. All right, Jamie. Oh, yeah, we got to talk about pub beer. If you're thinking about getting absolutely blacked out or just responsibly having one beer, what are you going to choose, Buds? Pub beer. There it is. All right. Pub beer. Pub beer. <laughs> All right, so you roll those dice, Jamie, and we will tell you what you got to do. All right, here it goes. I've got a four. 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 Uh, what is one of your worst bails of your career? Ooh. Uh, you know, there's been a couple um, that I put up there on the top two or three. Um, one was in 96. I was coaching camp in Verbier, Switzerland. It's called the Mountain High Camp. We had a session for the week, and then at the end of the week, we were going to get together and have a demo. Uh, we were hitting park jumps that we were going to use for that demo jump at the end of um, the day. Uh, Johan Olsen was also up there in a part of the camp, and, and for some reason, he had saw uh, a new feature that was just the snow that was pushed out the middle of the pipe and it had a really long takeoff a really long flat narrow tabletop to a really quick short landing um but it was twice three times as big as any of the park jumps that we were, had been hitting and were really comfortable and proficient with so someone made the decision that we were going to do the demo on this new jump no one had ever hit um, didn't even know if it was doable. The snow that came out of the pipe was super slow and sticky, so it was about a 30-foot-long takeoff that someone salted, and the last, like, 10 feet was now rock-hard ice, so you had to come through the middle of the pipe and really sticky glue to, like, the last, you know, gas pedal off the last 10 feet of this jump, try to gap you know, this table and put it onto a really steep short landing that only probably had 15 feet from knuckle to back out into the flats. 
And then after the flats, it had probably like a 10, 20 yard run out into like a pool of glacial water. It was a big puddle, pond. And we start the demo. I hit this jump. And I think I, I did like a cab five off it initially, and it hooked me off the lip, and I flew off of the spine and went out into the flats and landed out in the flats. That was like my first one, and I was like, okay, that sucked. Tried another one, went to the left, knuckled it. And then my third jump, I was like, okay, my kind of go-to safety jump at the time was like a front three. So I thought I'm just going to go easy this time. I'm going to do a front three and try to just – get this landing come off the lip everything feels good and then i really don't all i remember is i came to on a backboard the helicopter was there i had a halo of heads around me telling me that i was going to be all right i didn't know what had happened and and when i came to i was put immediately into a helicopter and the door shut and i have a i'm on a backboard with a view out the cockpit window there's two French-speaking Swiss pilots that I didn't know. I was my bell had been so rung. I didn't know if I if if I should speak be speaking French or if I even knew what English was anymore. Like it, whatever happened rocked me. Um, what had happened is I went off the jump, front three came around, opened up on the landing, and missed the landing by about a foot all the way down into the flats. And when I landed, I landed with such impact, it was like flying 50, 60 feet into like sandbags. And when I landed, it, the impact gave me this like head trauma concussion that knocked me out. And I did a dead man roll into a pool of glacial water. And the only way I know that is because years later, I saw, a, I think it was a Pleasure magazine, European publication that had a 20 shot sequence of it. And it was like 20 shots, and then the last frame was like 100 camp kids all in the semicircle with me in the middle of this puddle, totally crumpled up, looking like I was dead. So I come to, I'm in the helicopter, and they have to fly me from Verbier up on the glacier all the way down to the closest hospital. It's in St. Bernard. I remember being conscious enough when I came into St. Bernard, I had this beautiful aerial view of this beautiful Swiss village, two castles on opposing peaks, and then landed on the rooftop of the hospital. They transferred me into my room. I got, you know, you know, x-rays and stuff, but I get then admitted to a room where I'm in a room with this guy that had been in a really bad motorcycle accident. He was in a full body cast, um, completely armed, neck, brace, halo, arms out, suspended, couldn't move his head. And I was so freaking hungry. I hadn't ate all day. And this guy had like this gift basket next to him on the like side bed and it had like a bunch of Toblerone chocolates. So I spent the next two hours, it took four hours for the guys to come off the glacier and come down and meet me at the hospital. But for a long time, I was so out of it. I didn't even know what I, where I was at or what I was doing. And I was knocked out long enough, like I was totally blacked out unconscious long enough for them to call the helicopter. And however long it took from wherever the heli base was to come up to the glacier, that's when I regained consciousness. So that's how long I was out originally. But I remember like if there's anything that, I, that I'd go to hell for, 
was stealing this guy's Toblerone chocolates because <laughs> I would just sneak over and like try to be so quiet. He had no like, idea. Oh, just like try to chew it silently. Like it was like it was those so are cool. all that guy had, man. It's it, those it chocolates. Was, yeah. And I was like, man, you're in a full body cast. You're probably like eating through a tube right now. You probably so, can't even eat them. Yeah, it's the last thing you'd probably be able to navigate is opening up this Toblerone chocolates. You won't be missing. <laughs> yeah, he's not gonna miss them. Holy shit, that's good. That is good stuff. Okay. All right, we're going to get into a staple. It's called Hot Takes. Uh, we just ripped through a couple quick questions here. Uh, first one we always start with is the the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Oftentimes we call the Michael Jordan uh, of snowboarding, both male and female, in your opinion. Who you got? Uh, I mean, I look at Hawk, Terry Hawkinson and his career and how early he started and his ability to be a 15-year-old kid competing on um, a World Cup level, you know, and, and I remember 87 World Championships at Breckenridge, he was 15 and he got fifth place up against a, a crew of heavy hitters, Craig and, and Palmer at the time, and doing things were on that same level at such an early age where we weren't even close to it. Um, and then just his ability to navigate like everything and, and snowboarding either, uh, you know, backcountry riding, freestyle, quarter pipe, you know, we were doing early rail action back before it was really a th too much of a thing. And, but I, I for my generation, that's kind of where I put, you know, Hawken is that greatest of that time period. You know, I, I there's other writers that, you know, I look at and that I don't really, you know, it, it's hard to pick just one. You know, there's a handful of guys out here, the greatest of all time. It, it, the only one that's had the longevity and the the accolades and the the contest placings, the video parts, like everything from a, a broad spectrum of application. Hey, Terry Hawkinson. Okay, and then female as well. Um, you know, Barrett Christie. She, Great answer. She is an amazing human and an incredible snowboarder, and she's done the same thing, like so many different things on so many different levels. If it's filming and free riding, if it's hitting a session kicker with the boys, she's right up in there in the mix. Um, Olympic Olympian, you know, it's just like huge accolades for for one person that's had a, a, a career span so many decades, like definitely, you know, Barrett. Okay, who's the most underrated in your opinion? Hmm. Underrated. You know, um, let's say like e either like Todd Slosher, you know, Joey McGuire. Those guys are incredible humans, incredible snowboarders, but always kind of had, at that time, there were so many other things going on, especially from the Northwest with like Peter, Dave Lee, myself. It was just hard to exist, I think, and really have the ability to stand out in their abilities because it, there was so much happening in that part of the world. Um, but um, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, th those guys, I'd always looked, and I wish they could have, like, and maybe they didn't want to, but I think they could have got a little bit further down the line and a little bit more out of it if it was any other situation. Okay. This is a very stupid question, but uh, steel, as in rails, or powder? You know, it, being where I'm at now, definitely powder, <laughs> you know. But there was a time where, like, the early introduction to rails and snowboarding, I was all in, you know, like whatever obstacle we could get our hands on. The early super park sessions in Tahoe with those rails, you know, like 270 board slides on a rail was something that it was something that I always dreamt of doing on a skateboard, you know. So having that skate background and like rails were a huge part of skateboarding in my generation and then having the chance to kind of connect and start that genre in snowboarding, you know, and, and it's something that I, you know, I, I wish that. You know, as as your your youth dissolves and age progresses, that's kind of the least of where your focus is going to be is trying to get down on a rail and do it proper. Um, huge respect for the people that have taken that and, and excelled in it and set a new standard for it. You know, I really enjoy it. But right now and where I'm at, it's definitely powder up in the Kootenays. <laughs> <laughs> Sidebar, though, we, I don't know if we talked about this, but you're the first person to do a front 270 on a rail in snowboarding? I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, it, it was something that, it, it, it was an evolution of, like, um, doing lean method front threes, you know, and, and just doing those so much in front, you know, ollie front threes, and there was this rock ledge that melted away where it was kind of a step up to this granite ledge and I would do front threes over it, but then I just decided like you could catch your edge and board slide this on like a 270 board slide. And and then I you know, I took it to Tahoe and we were up at Squaw and there was kind of another like bench curb rock thing off the side of the cat track where you could kind of jam off of a little snowbank and do like smack it and do board slides off of there and then started getting those down and then we did that super park it was either one or two i think it was the second super park ever and then they set up that rail and then it was just like a natural progression of doing it naturally on that you know rock terrain to like actually having a rail to get down on okay uh best style ever who you got oh man you know it's a mix between Nico, Mueller, and Gigi Ruff. Nice. I'd give top honors to both those cats. And unfortunately, before the whole shakedown with Nico, I was looking at his riding and all of his posts going, man, this guy is lining up for, like, rider of the year, video part of the year. It's unfortunate the way sh things shook out for him and his place in life right now. It's, like, it's pretty unfortunate, you know. But I, I without getting into too much of the politics just his writing and what i've seen and then with gigi like he's always just been so smooth and fluid you know and just like takes terrain and dissects it in a way that makes it look so much fun maximizes everything and does everything right at the right time in the right place and i really that stood out for me on one of the first supernatural contests or the natural selection that was up the first one at bald face where Gooch and I were guest judges and we got to watch it 
um, you know, not only in the monitors, but in firsthand and watching those two put the runs down that they did on Scary Cherry was like none, none other I've ever seen before and really cool to be a part of it. So those guys definitely. Great answer. Next question is favorite board graphic ever made. It's a heavy one. Yeah. You know, one that was always special to me was my first one, you know, because it is my first chance to have a pro model. And, and you know, it wasn't like the best, but it was my first. And there's something that connects me to that, being having that chance and experience. Um, uh, yeah, that's kind of an off-guard question because there's so many out there now, so many good ones, you know. Um, Temple's graphic and the graphic artist that he works with is one of the most incredible graphics and the way that the art translates onto the board, the sublimation from GNU and Adam's graphic that he submits to Temple. There's a couple that he's done that I'm just like, wow, that couldn't get any better. Um, Palmer did a graphic when he started Palmer Snowboards that was done by this artist named Aaron Kane. Um, tattoo artist from Grass Valley um, did this biomechanical board graphic for Palmer back then, and I was like, I, I was living in San Francisco behind the tattoo shop, and I watched him do the original artwork for it. Palmer was coming down and getting tattooed in the shop, and they were kind of collaborating on the ideas and and watching him develop that board graphic. I'd always looked at that and said, wow, that's a fucking kick-ass graphic. So there, there's a couple out there that I've really connected with over the years. And again, there's so many that I'm sure that I'll leave here and go, fuck, I'm blowing it. You know, I forgot to mention that one, but those ones off the top of my head would probably be the best. I can assure you, you'll do that. Yeah, you'll do that. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, okay, if you could go, if you're going heliboarding with three people, just good times, there's, there's three other seats in the heli. And you're just going to rip pow. You can take whoever you want. Uh, you know, anybody in the world. They might don't have you. to be snowboarders. Uh, who are you, who you putting in that heli? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll throw a couple, like, artists, like Jean-Michel Basquiat. You know, like, it'd be interesting to introduce them to the world of snowboarding in a helicopter experience. Uh, Lemmy, that'd be another one, you know, that would be just be comedy, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't be any like chance to watch someone be proficient on a snowboard, but just how he, <laughs> how he would deal with that whole experience would be a fucking good laugh. And, um, you know, Thalo, my boy. Sounds like a fun, fun heli right there. Yeah. Make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Killer. Uh, okay, last question we're going to ask is, worst trend? What's the worst trend? It could be in the world or it could be in snowboarding. Uh, hmm. There's a lot of depth to that question. I don't know, you know, like worst trend. Uh, uh, I don't know. Isolating humanity that causes polarity in mankind. You know, making people pick sides to battle each other or to, you know, it's like, why can't everyone just like get along and, and have compassion for one another? So I think 
you know, once you have to pick a side, you're kind of, it just instantly causes friction and negativity and struggle. And it doesn't have to be like that. Very, very eloquent answer there. Um, okay, we got a couple things left here. You know, one thing, one quote I always heard, I um, can't remember who said it, or I don't remember where I heard it, but I do remember hearing that you were the first snowboarder to uh, make a million dollars and spend a million dollars. Um, is that true? Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you want to elaborate on that? You know, there, there probably is some truth to that. I, I was probably there uh, in the nineties when board sales were, were crazy and I was equally as crazy. <laughs> I probably made and lost a million dollars before I was 30 years old and remember making like, you know, huge investments in like stock and stuff and then 2008 it shit the bed and i had like a you know a fairly large portfolio that was reduced down to like forty thousand dollars and i had to pull that 40 grand to pay taxes on something so it left me with absolute zero after over 10 15 years of accumulation um you know, I, I I lived a life of excess and gluttony, and, and I like to bring my friends along for the ride, and I, I would was frivolous with my expenses and wasn't smart, and I didn't have a CPA, and I didn't really know what taxes were all about, and I didn't really do the things that I could have done to put a retirement program in place to where, you know, once that opportunity is lost, it's gone forever. But all that's left is the memories of those good times that I had living the life of a complete, you know, carefree mid-20, 20-year-old kid up into my 30s of just like, you know, if I wanted to get buy a last-minute ticket to Norway and go there and stay a month, like, I, you could. You could afford it, you know. If I wanted to buy I went and bought a full-size pickup and paid in cash and didn't get any insurance on it and like a couple of years later it got ripped off and and then that was it it's gone you know so it made me think like all the materialistic stuff it, it's there but it's transient and temporary you know you can't hold on you can't take it to your grave so if you can share and if you could enrich yourself that's what really makes you a rich person in my mind and it was fun while it lasted and I'm just thankful that I'm still have the opportunity to exist in something that I've been a part of for so long. It's not that, you know, I'm, I'm looking to make another million before I'm 50, you know, and I don't know. I, I, I think about more about the future now because I'm a father and it's, it's not so like, you know, just taking care of number one and day in and day out. If you can have enough to put food on the table and get you down the road with gas in your tank, you know, that was my priority for many, many years. And now it's a little bit more thoughtful in my approach, a little bit more deliberate. And, you know, like to have job security in the snowboard industry is like not easy. You know, it's and it's not, you don't always have that. And, and how fortunate and blessed I've been and the opportunity to still be involved with companies that I've ridden with, with since I was a kid and grown up with and still like, you know, 30 30 plus years later still be doing what I'm doing like wow that's it's really special and I'm thankful just for that opportunity not that I'm like looking to make a bunch of money out of it but the experiences in life have made me a, a, in my mind a rich person fuck that's good stuff mm -hmm. good shit Jamie um 
Yeah, I had a note from Pete Sari, and he said uh, he always gives more than he gets and somehow leads him to getting more than he gives. Yeah, I mean, if I don't know. It goes back to, like, doing what you love and loving what you do, and you put that energy out there in the world, and a lot of times when you are able to share or gift somebody without any expectation of any return, um, anything in return, there's usually something that you put out in the universe that provides later on down the road, you know, like it, 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 like Scotty and I were talking about the universe providing it usually one way or another, like when you spend, spend your last cent on something that was in a good, you know, nature or a good deed, you, you know, go a hundred yards down the road and you find something that's, you know, pays you back and without any expectations of return it's just a good way to be able to like open yourself up to sharing and people pick up on that and then when you might get in a tight spot that's their opportunity to reciprocate that whole book the secrets all about the ebb and flow of giving and taking and receiving and they say if you give give unconditionally it comes back exponentially yeah. And I believe that, you know. Yeah, it's the truth, you know, and, and uh, it's not necessarily some, something you're always conscious of, but if you just have that simple belief that, like, you know, if you got something that you can share, you do that. And help someone, you know? yeah. yeah, help them. Yeah. Okay, we got a guest question from Dave Sioni. Here we go. James, David Paul Sioni here. I have one question. If you were to go back and snowboard... All over again, from the beginning, when you're a little snow rat, as a little kid, to where you are now, what would you do differently? You know, Dave, I don't think I would do a damn thing any different. You know, there's a couple of things that, you know, with my own personal life that wasn't really related to the actual application of snowboarding that I might have altered. But what a ride, you know, what a what a crazy path that I was put on and and wow you know like so many life experiences from when I was a teenager to where I am now that I'm just like wow I've been to so many different countries in the world I've met so many different people in the world and shared all these good times with all these awesome people and and I'm still able to do it it's like how could you change that and think that you could do it any better Love that answer. Yeah, that's beautiful. All right. Well, Jamie, a uh, couple things before we wrap this thing up. We always ask our guests about their their board setup that they ride. What what do you uh, what do you rock in boards, bindings, all that stuff? You know, still with Liptech and and Volcom after all these years, um, I've been trying out the short wide board technology a little bit. It seems to really fit the application of you know powder and, and trees from the, the area that I've been riding in late recently up around Baldface. It just gives me all the flotation and buoyancy with easy swing weight, you know, not a really long board to pack a bunch of snow on top. So it just makes the experience a little bit more freer, more like skatey. Um, 
But then I go back to my, you know, my 160 when I get steep or I go to Alaska. I'm riding my 160 Phoenix um, and and just bent metal bindings. Been on bent metal since they were baseless, you know, since the beginning. And uh, and loving it. Like, LibTech truly makes the best boards I've ever, you know, in the world for me. And, and, and I've... You know, I've got on different boards at different times just to take a run or two, but it always goes back to like, well, I don't know if I'm just a creature of habit with these things. I wrote them so long that this is what feels comfortable. But, you know, Pete and Mike, two amazing individuals and, and what they do and the way they do it, something that I really have a lot of respect for and admiration for them to be such creative geniuses, but then navigate the whole financial side and the buyouts and the growing growth aspect of owning your own company and being able to still do what they do the way they do it. Mad respect for them for being able to pull that off and still be happy and stoked with the products that they can share with the rest of the world. Um, You know, as you get older, your application adjusts to different, you know, writing and that short wide board is kind of fun in that aspect, but I still like to freestyle, you know, I still like to jump, I still like to drop stuff and I still like to grab and spin. So with that powder short wide board, it kind of limits the application. Like you can't drop a 50, 60 foot cliff and have any like thought unless it's a complete vert landing that you're going to be able to keep the nose from stuffing and you cartwheeling so when you get on a proper freestyle board like a 157 or 160 i'm able to do everything that i still love to do and whatever application that is it's not the craziest not the biggest not the biggest spins or rotations or tweaked out grabs but i still got a couple things that really make me happy and that's what i hold on to and those are the boards that i do it on now, uh, you've been working on a project with Jake Price for a few years. Uh, what's going on with that? Yeah, I mean, um, we kind of had the idea a couple years back to get involved with Vans, to have Vans um, work with me to get a film together. And Jake and I initiated it and started it. And we got a lot of trips and a lot of stuff, but not 100% complete where we could put a fork in it and call it done. And then COVID hit, kind of shut everything down, um, kind of allowed us to take a break from the attention to finish the project. And then um, Jake's going through, he just had hip surgery. So he's on a recovery program to get his hip back together. He'd been in rehab and, and kind of like just not really checked out, but just shifted gears. And, um, you know, his focus is on himself. So... But what's awesome is I think with Vans, you know, they, they didn't get into the project with the expectations that we were going to be able to turn something out super quick. And we wanted to do it with enough time to do it right. And if we couldn't, then the allowance that Vans had to say, hey, you guys, take your time, do whatever you need to do to make sure that the product you put out, you're going to be happy with. Um, but I just talked to Jake a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I mean, we're, we're both still really motivated we're both excited to get back on board and back up in the mountains and complete it. Um, we've got a great start. We just don't want to leave it open-ended with, like, you know, not a complete story. 
and I think we're still in the development of completing that story and and you know I'm looking forward to maybe getting after it this season and and putting uh you know being able to to get it out there for people to check out you know it's it's been a fun project so far we've been into some you know cool stuff based around you know Canada that that's where where I've been at but we we did a really fun trip up to AK and and Valdez and um whole different world up there um place that I really love so hopefully that translates in what comes out holy hell Jamie this has been a great conversation we always we always ask our guests if they want to throw any thank yous out before we put a bow on this thing man what a list um all these years I've had so many help me and support me to be able to do what I've done and live the life that I've led um you know oh all the sponsors, you know, it goes back from like, even like Joel Gomez at Sessions, man. Huge, huge support. One of my first paying sponsors, you know, offered me 500 bucks when I was still in high school. Allowed me to get my first car. You know, I bought a $500 Volkswagen Bug when I was in high school and, and he gave me that chance and helped establish Gore-Tex in the industry with my first Sessions signature jacket with Sessions. You know, um, Unfortunately, I was put in a position where I kind of had to choose. Sessions wasn't making streetwear. Volcom wasn't making outerwear, and I could con exist with those two brands complementing each other. Once they crossed that line, I kind of was forced in a position. And, you know, I'm um, always kind of bummed that I kind of was able, ha had to leave Sessions because he was a huge part of my foundation. So, Joel Gomez, thank you very much. Love you, brother. Hope you're doing well. Um, you know, Volcom Vans, those guys have been amazing all these years. Mike and Pete at Mervin with the boards. You know, all the people out there that have ever bought anything that I've been connected to, I wouldn't have been able to do it without you guys' support of all those products that I put my name on. You know, boards, boots, outerwear, goggles, whatever it is. Thank you for all the years of supporting my cause. Um, can't thank you enough. Um, huge shout to mother of my child, Dini. Love you. Um, so fun going on this trip with you and being, you know, first time parents taking this journey. I wouldn't want to be taking it with anybody else but you. So thank you and I love you. Um, you know, you guys for making this possible, allowing me to hang out and share some stories with you and and spend time it's been a really a pleasure and and thank you very much dude thank you man for gracing us with your presence i know you don't come to salt lake a lot so it's yeah it's so good to have you here you know and thanks for everyone who contributed and the questions and all the you know the the viewers and the you know listeners to to have all that input and stuff really helped me develop you know uh, some some dialogue to provide and and uh, thank you, Bombhole listeners, for, for supporting what these guys are doing. It's, uh, it's righteous, and I hope you guys keep doing it for a long time. Well, we really appreciate you, Jamie. Thank you so much. Uh, man, been a hell of a conversation. And like Jamie said, we appreciate you guys listening. And uh, we will see you next week, over and out from the Bombhole.